Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And I haven't decided yet whether or not I'm going to just have like 10 minutes of random ASMR at the start of this podcast to fully replicate the movie we're talking about today. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always and only this week is Andrew. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good. We also have Veecher. Um, yeah. our co-host. Um, I want to get guest. some wood blocks up in this. <laughs> some wonderful Jerry Goldsmith uh, type sound effects. Fantastic. No, like um yeah, you you can you can you can probably criticize this movie for a few things. Um, not to get too ahead of ourselves. Yeah. yeah, I think the music's done well. The music has done very, very well for itself. Yes, listeners, we are talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is not a movie that is on the 250 or has ever been on the 250 or ever will be on the 250. But also, like, this is our podcast. And we can do what we want. <laughs> we can do what we want. <laughs> yeah. we, the, the reason why... And we, 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 like, I think, I think as well, it just so happens that our whims coincide with, like... A large fan base of, <laughs> um, you know, um, of, of 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 Star Trek fans. Would we do this if um, if we if we just wanted to? Like that is a question. Oh, so, yeah. so I mean, like, okay, so that's the Blackbird threshold. That's the question we're setting in motion. Will we be covering uh, Michael Flatley's Blackbird? That's the question that lingers over this podcast. Um, but okay, so so the re- two reasons why we were covering um, the motion picture. The first of which is that it was occasionally myself and Andrew will get together for a weekend and try to do three. Tony Sirico died. <laughs> <laughs> so we're doing all of the Star Sopranos. Trek the motion picture, <laughs> which he isn't in. Yeah. Make it topical. Sopranos Keep it topical. is a spiritual uh, prequel companion to, to. I mean, it is it is about the human condition. The yeah. human adventure really was about to begin for um for Tony Soprano, you know. He's like um, Viger um, is just in a in in a room, and it's like I see somebody who has a purpose, and I just want to crush the skull. <laughs> <laughs> the happy wanderer, um, yeah. <laughs> just not a care in the world, drifting through the cosmos. Yeah. Um, but yes, I love What's that when Andrew and I are alone together, where it's just immediately nonsense, um, <laughs> which is fantastic. I, uh, but yeah, so two reasons. First of all is, yes, my love and Andrew got together at the, at the weekend to watch three movies. Uh, and I decided there was no way I could research three movies. So I was like, let's do something I can talk about off the top of my head, which is Star Trek, the motion picture. And then we didn't record it that weekend at all, but we no. watched it. So we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Petrina and, was telling me to re... re, re um... Uh, repeat my steps to find out where I left my notes, and if I if I had actually taken her advice, I would have found them. Um, okay. I mean, I I had a feeling where they were anyway, but, okay. but I was like, no, I was just like sitting in front of my television in in the sitting room watching it, like writing notes. You were probably there, and I th- I think it was after finding it is like you you watched that with Darren, didn't you? <laughs> like, yeah, I did. <laughs> Um, it's nice to know that myself and Petrina are interchangeable in your memory. <laughs> um, but also well, yeah you're you're my podcast uh hus- husband spouse wife? yes spouse. Yeah, podcast spouse. Uh, podcast spouse yeah yeah that's not gender uh, the ps as it were um 
But yes, and the other reason we're talking about it is because P.S. there was a recent. I love you. What? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're a charmer, Andrew. I like that. Um, the other reason we are talking about this is because uh, there was recently a HD 4K remaster of the director's edition of the motion picture, restoring it to the version that Robert Wise wanted to see made. Uh, it was released on DVD in 2001. Uh, it was not released ever on HD. Paramount Plus, which is Paramount Streaming Service, have been digging in the content mines, looking for new material they can put out there. So they went to a bunch of editors and they asked, like, could you restore this for high definition? And they have. So Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition, is available on Paramount Plus in the United States right now. It will be receiving a theatrical release in the in Ireland and the United Kingdom towards the end of this month or next month. And it will be receiving a Blu-ray and 4K remaster release again in September, along with Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which I might see if I can twist Andrew's arm into covering for its 40th anniversary. But let's not get there right yeah. now. I, I, yeah, I've... I've... Like I've 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 probably spoken about the Wrath of Khan on the two fifty before, but um to save anybody the bother <laughs> of going right I don't really like the Wrath of Khan. I find it like a very sweaty uh film. Like not 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 um metaphorically sweaty. I mean there sweaty. are a lot of Chippendales in the like movie. Li- literally like, sweaty. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's there's no. so many there's like uh, there, everyone's like all oiled up. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, like um, Khan's followers, who are genetically perfect specimens of mankind, were mostly hired male exotic dancers. And they, they look like it. They look yeah. like they're polished beechwood. Um, yeah. And it, the, the, it's a, there's a part of it as well, which is a horror movie. And I... I, I the worms. Yeah, I always got really upset about Star Trek when it goes in a kind of a horror direction. Um... I, it feels I, like a violation of of kind of what you expect from the franchise. Yeah, it was, like I remember as a child, it was something that I watched, and then occasionally there would be like this horror kind of scene in it, and I get really upset. I know exactly what scene you're thinking about because it was probably Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yes, and I'm guessing it's the sequence with similar insects to the ones in the Wrath of Khan that similarly crawl inside people and like force their orifices open to invade them. And then one of them gets their head exploded uh, very graphically for, yeah. like, you know, syndicated television in, like, 1987. And I, I, I think right. I, I combined, though, uh, that memory. And at one point I was watching the news with my parents. And they showed, like, some some guy, I guess some some very intelligent person had died. And they were like cutting open his head and taking out his brain and like making kind of cross sections of it. Um, and I, I like I felt like that maybe happened on Star Trek The Next Generation. But but I think it was just something okay. on, on the news or Tomorrow's World or something. I, I do love that. It, that's a very network type thing. Smart pe- Do smart people have bigger brains? We'll find out after this commercial message. <laughs> um, but yes, we are talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I figured that it would be a nice pitch for you, because I think we talked about Star Trek VI, uh, The Undiscovered Country, with the passing of Christopher Plummer. Um, and I had great fun talking about it. I think you did as well. People seem to really like that. I think people have described it as like, I think it has one of our best jokes in there. I think you have like a really good one-liner that I kind of, doubled over while i was editing the episode and i've had people actually like message me online being like that's 
really funny, well done, guys. I don't remember what it is, which is a problem. So I guess you have to go back and listen. <laughs> I thought you were going to remind me what it was. Um, <laughs> that funny thing that Andrew said one time. Um, but when we were talking about that, well, we well, briefly... like I can't imagine it would be it would be like because um, D D Malambe's um, call the plumber was pretty good um, when she was talking about Christopher Plummer. Um, that'd be hard to top. Um, yeah, I don't think it was plumber related. I think it was Klingon related. I don't know if it was Gorkin or or some sort of thing, um, but some sort of play on words or some sort of like situational humor. Uh, again, the episode is in our archives. We can go back great. and listen to it anytime. <laughs> yeah, um, but listening. but also while we were talking about that, that we talked about the other movies, and I think you mentioned that you have a certain amount of affection or had a certain amount of affection for the motion picture which is a Star Trek movie which has a somewhat troubled or complicated relationship with fandom. Uh, it is the origin of the famous uh, odd numbers bad, even numbers good curse when it comes to Star Trek movies, where certain segments of Star Trek fandom argue that you can tell whether a Star Trek movie is going to be good or bad by whether or not the number is divisible by two. Um, and this was really kind of where it began. But at the same time, I think you said that you had a an affection for it. And so do you remember and, the first time you saw And I have an affection for um, other odd-numbered um, Star Trek movies. Not all of them. Um, I mean, you are a, a Final Frontier fan right there. Right through, through, through you know, what does God need with a Star no, Trek? No, I, I, I like Generations. Yes. Um, a lot. I, I, I think it's great. I think I, I, I prefer it to First Contact. I feel yes, like that is a that is an argument we may have at some point in the future, but yes. Yeah, well, the 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 um, first contact just feels a little bit too kind of militaristic, and and the, the that that it's about, I guess the 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 it's 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 a weird sort of a pre nine eleven kind of nine um, <laughs> eleven movie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where it feels, it feels, yeah, where it feels kind of like, um, uh, yeah, that, uh, like that, that it could be kind of Archer, or, uh, as as in uh, Captain Archer. <laughs> take take that Star Trek Enterprise um, and your utopian vision of the future. I I I I, I don't know very much about Star Trek Enterprise. I, I've I've seen like none of it. it, it there, there's a very strong Bush vibe to Star Trek Enterprise, right down to the fact that the yeah, that's the sense I got. Yeah, right down the fact that Archer is like the guy whose father was like railroaded by the Vulcans, so he has a chip on his shoulder about Vulcans, and you're like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, to be fair, he doesn't invade Vulcan to pursue and to like further his father's dream or whatever. But if it's when you're watching it like from the distance of like twenty years down the road, you're like, wow. Very Star Trek, very topical. Always, always very topical. But do you remember the first time you saw the motion picture? And do you remember kind of like what your memory of it was the first time you saw it? Yeah, it it was um, it was the nineties. We are watching the Next Generation, and I think it was not certain, but I, I'm going to guess that it was in or around the kind of uh, I I I. I think I heard recently that the Undiscovered Country was released around the same time as the. Um, oh no! It's yourself. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was one of your videos, or maybe it wasn't. But anyway, sorry. It was. It was. It was I, I think it was after the original six movies had come out, but before 
um, Star Trek Generations. Yeah. So yeah, that would be towards the end of the next generation. So sometime like after the fifth season. Yeah, we we would. My brother got these. Um, we 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 would have gotten them from the um, from the video. Um, uh, store which which killed radio the radio store yes uh, yeah yeah <laughs> video video did kill the radio store and then and then we killed the video store um but the podcast store i guess is is still open podcast killed the radio store <laughs> um but yeah um but do you do you remember like when you saw it as a kid like what your reaction to it was like did you have that reaction to many star trek fans which was this is very slow. It's maybe a little bit derivative of either certain other gigantic science fiction movies that were released around the same time that Star Trek was coming out on TV, or it's derivative of particular earlier Star Trek episodes. Um, or did you kind of glom to its pacing, its intellectual ideas? Like, there's a certain argument that this is perhaps the closest that the franchise has ever come to putting Star Trek itself on screen, to reflecting what the television show of Star Trek is in terms of intellectual accessible science fiction. Yeah, I I I I I don't know what how much of that kind of intellectual reaction I had to it. I feel like I was kind of like um this is cool. It's more Star Trek um and there's like more to come, you know. There's a whole like there's like six, There's five more of them. Yeah, there's five more of these and it's like yeah, yeah, more. Um, and, and maybe, um, less, uh, critical, but I enjoyed it. I liked it. I wanted to see more. Um, I'd say that Generations gets, it, 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 in relation to what you're saying there about, like, this is as close as it gets to, like, for, for all the kind of, um, it being on a kind of a bigger, more kind of expensive scale. I think generations um, touches on a lot of kind of intellectual, kind of spiritual. That sort of idea of science fiction as an intellectual exercise, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or of, of um, closer to kind of episodes of the next generation. I'd I'd probably go with I think more insurrection. I think insurrection feels like it's a two parter from next generation. I don't necessarily think it's a good two parter, but it does feel like it could be an episode of the next generation. Yeah, yeah, but it, but it, it. but it's very much it, it it's yeah it's a two parter. It's a special yeah. television event where, like, we got F. Marie Abraham. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But but that that's that's not that's not reflective of the show overall. I guess. Fair. fair. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. So in terms of myself, I don't necessarily remember the first time I saw it. It was not the first Star Trek movie I saw. I think I talked about this on the Undiscovered Country. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock was the first Star Trek movie that I saw because it had Spock in the title, and I was like, I should know who Spock is. And I was rather disappointed with the lack of Spock content, at least in front of the camera, uh, in the search for Spock. Um, but I did go back and I began to fill in those gaps. Were you disappointed with Where's Waldo? Where's Wally? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I love Wally. Yeah, th- this seems like the perfect book. It's going yeah. to tell me where he is. Uh, wait, what? Why, why are there so many people who aren't Wally in this book right now? And yeah, the, the next, sorry, the, the motion picture is, is kind of like a movie I've had a very interesting relationship with, where it is a movie I find myself liking the idea of much more than I often like the experience of watching, which is an interesting sensation. Right. Where I like thinking about it. I like the fact that it exists. I like moments of it in isolation. But I find that whenever I sit down to watch it, I have this kind of realization that this is two hours and 20 minutes long. 
and it is like 90 minutes of plot. Um, they, like y- they have to accentuate the fact that this isn't a TV show anymore. This isn't like an episode <laughs> of a TV show. This is a long ass movie. It's substantial. It's a motion picture. <laughs> it has an overture. It has an overture. Feature length. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know that. Okay, I don't know how much of the backstory of this you know, but I feel like it may explain some of this. Andrew- I, I, I know some. Like, I, I, Leonard Nimoy was doing Equus. And, yes! Um, That's a very specific thing to know, but yes, yes, he was. Yeah, and he went uh, for a no, walk. No, Jeffrey on, Katzenberg, yep, went to visit him. He did, uh, but there were there were these lines around the block for Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and um, he said, um, then, and uh, like my recollection of it was that it, it was like prepare for, you know, to um, yeah, receive some calls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're, you're, we might be busy soon with this, yeah. and 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 that the and that these movies kind of happen because you know studio heads were like, oh wow, look at look at like how wild these kids are going for 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 Star Wars. We have this Star Trek thing that's gotten just more and more popular um, as time has gone by, um, with this kind of. Um, loyal fan base let's um let's do this no time like the present yep pretty much that that's pretty much exactly it darren says as he launches into a seven minute spiel um but <laughs> but no that, that is it so obviously star trek's let's hear the six. long version uh, the, the long, the, was it the long unnecessarily long and uncomfortable version um, <laughs> with the 250 trope yeah um, but okay so star trek ends in 1969 ironically it ends a couple of weeks shy of the moon landing and there's various arguments that whether or not the show if it had continued would have glommed on to a consciousness that was post moon landing or whatever uh paramount at the time they're just happy to see the back of it they sell it into syndication over time it begins making more and more money through syndication so they look at ways of bringing it back they bring it back in a number of ways most obvious is the animated series which is the cheap ass filmation series i don't know if you've ever seen it or any of it no none of it actually yeah Yeah, no that's that's a mostly a good choice yesteryear if you want one episode watch yesteryear um but yes it is made incredibly on the cheap it looks how would one watch it uh it's available on netflix Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> like, that's that's how, like, nobody cares about the animated series. It's on Netflix and nobody notices that it's there. <laughs> it seems like something that would be on Amazon. Uh, yeah, yeah, just to make it even. Yeah, just to balance it out. It's, it's actually on Hulu. Um, but, um, yeah, no, so so obviously that comes out. Um, and again, very cheap. Paramount, look at making a movie around about 73, uh, which is going to be Planet of the Titans. Uh, they hire 250 almost ran Philip Kaufman, who is like a director who we keep coming back to in terms of like getting like so close to directing iconic and important movies and always getting fired at the last hurdle. So he's the guy who almost directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's the guy who like Clint Eastwood fired uh, to create the Eastwood rule. And he was brought in to direct what would be called Planet of the Titans. Um, And then that project didn't materialize at all. And he was kind of let go. What happened then is like Paramount had been planning to bring it back as a cheap ass movie. They wanted to give it a budget of three million dollars, which would have been tiny. 1973 release would have looked like the television show did pretty much. Then what happens is, um, as you suggest. Well, first of all, okay, what happens then is Paramount decide that they want to move into television. They want to launch the infamous fourth television network. Um, Obviously, network very big at the time. Uh, they were like, yeah, we should be UBS. We want to aspire to be UBS. But Paramount were like, yeah, we want to launch... Sorry? That was like 1976, right? Yes, you're <laughs> right. That was very good. 
Nice. It was exactly, yeah. So it was before, yeah, it was around that time anyway. But yeah, so basically Paramount say, we want to be the fourth network. We want to launch Paramount TV, PTV. And what we want to do is we want Star Trek to come back for it. So we begin developing what is called Phase 2. And Phase 2 is this series of shows. And again, there's a wonderful book that's put together by Mike and Denise Okuda. I recommend seeking it out. I believe it's available on e-reader. And they begin lining up kind of scripts for it. And Roddenberry is coming back. Sounds very contemporary. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the way we talk about Marvel, like phases yeah. and all that. Sorry. sorry and and also the idea me. of like your launch. No, but also you're entirely right. It's the idea of you're launching a service and you want the service to have something that people will recognize on it as a brand leader. Like it's exactly what Paramount did when Paramount did eventually launch a service uh, in like 1994, 95, which was UPN. The first show to premiere on it was Caretaker, which was the ep- the pilot of Voyager. Voyager was the cornerstone, the flagship for Paramount's network when they eventually did launch it because, again, recognizable IP intellectual property. Um, however, that falls through, uh, never develops. And there's an interesting argument advanced by the Akudas that, like, if that had happened, it's very likely that PTV would have bombed and Star Trek Phase 2 would have bombed and Star Trek never would have got to come back as the next generation at all. So maybe it was a good thing that that never happened. But as you said, right smack bang in the middle of it, Star Wars happens. And not only does Star Wars happen, Close Encounters of the Third Kind also happens at the same time. So Paramount are like, oh my God, that is a reproducible model. Audiences want to see science fiction. They want to see great looking science fiction. We have a property we can adapt. And you're entirely right. This feels like an episode of the television show that has been stretched to two hours and 20 minutes. Because it is an episode of the television show that has been stretched to two hours and 20 minutes. Apparently, Michael Eisner, the head of Paramount, received the script for In Thy Image, which was supposed to be the pilot of Star Trek Phase 2, and was like, this should be a Michael feature. Eisner, did, did he go on to Disney? Yes, he did, along with his, his number one henchman and future uh, hater Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yes. Wow. They, they, they were just like at Paramount in the 70s. Yep, in the late 70s, yep. Wow. Um, and, like, through the 80s as well. It was, I believe it was Eisner who, like, convinced, or Limoy convinced Eisner to let him direct Star Trek Three. But, yeah, basically they both hop-shipped that over to Disney at, towards the end of the 80s and then reinvented it and led to the Disney renaissance and stuff like that. So, yeah, so, no, it all it all begins here. Uh, but, basically, they latch on and they're like, okay, we, we need to make this a movie. It needs to be expensive. We can't do it cheap. Uh, and we also need to stretch out this like 90 minute episode of television to fill two hours and 20 minutes of cinema screen time, which, you know, slight spoiler for the conversation we're going to have. You maybe feel at certain points when you're watching the movie, uh, but we'll get into that. There are several problems here. Most of the cast are eager to sign on. Uh, William Shatner is practically overjoyed. He begins fasting immediately, living on a diet of water and cucumber <laughs> in order to fit. No, he's talked about this. Like He was like, if Kirk's going to the screen, Kirk is going to look better than he's ever looked before. So he apparently, like, for a year leading up to it, was like, okay, fine. Um, I'm going to, like, eat cucumber and drink water. Paramount get ballsy, and they announce in March 1978 that they are going to have this movie in cinemas for summer 1979. Now, to be fair... The movie does slip, and we'll talk a little bit about why it slips later on, but they get it into cinemas for December 1979, but it puts everything under a massive crunch. They're immediately racing towards a release deadline, and one of the issues with the director's edition, which we'll come back to, is that Robert Wise, the director, feels like he didn't actually finish the version of the movie. It was more escaped than he finished it. 
Um, and so the director's edition was a chance for him to like make edits and to finish editing the movie um, and finally release the version he wanted to release. Um, the biggest problem, as you suggested, Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy uh, was done with Spock. Famously, again, we know his autobiography, I Am Not Spock. We also know his second autobiography, I Am Spock. And the Simpsons <laughs> joke, which I love, which is, I am also Scotty. Um, but... <laughs> But Leonard Nimoy had basically said, no, I don't want to do any more Star Trek. There had been a number of issues around that. First of all, like, so when they did the animated series, Nimoy had to fight to bring back the voice cast. He had to fight to bring back all the rest of the cast. They just wanted him and Shatner. Uh, notably, Shatner did not fight to bring the rest of the cast back for the animated series. But we'll we'll talk about that when we talk about Star Trek V, if we talk about Star Trek V. Uh, Nimoy had also discovered that Paramount had been licensing his image as Spock for merchandise. And apparently the the straw that broke the camel's back there was when he saw a Heineken advert with Mr. Spock in it that he did not see a penny for. And then the third thing that had happened was that he was in the middle of a massive feud with, I believe, Gene Roddenberry over the Quester tapes, which was a role that Roddenberry had promised Nimoy and then gave to Robert Foxworthy. Nimoy apparently publicly said, well, it turns out it was the best anyway. I never liked the script. But apparently behind the scenes, he was simmering massively. So... The, Roddenberry, who is now kind of like meddling in this and is is like very much overseeing production and kind of like making his business everybody's business, is like, well, it's fine. We don't need Spock. We'll invent a new character. We'll call him Zon. However, everybody else is like, no, if you're making a Star Trek movie, you need Spock. Apparently, when director Robert Wise takes the script home and she and to his wife and his wife Melisent reads it, she's like, where's Spock? That's her one question. Her one note of feedback on the script is where's Spock? Katzenberg and Eisner are like, no, you need Spock. Katzenberg flies out to visit Nimoy during the play that he's on, Equus, the one that you mentioned. They meet and have dinner. Nimoy says, look, my issues are, I can't do it while there's a lawsuit ongoing. And I can't do it while my rights issues aren't settled. So apparently, after Katzenberg goes back to his room after that meeting, Nimoy receives a check for his likeness rights by 5pm, a script for the motion picture by 6 p.m., and details of the flight that he will be on to Los Angeles by 7 p.m. That is how quickly this comes together. Uh, And throughout production, the production is incredibly, incredibly fraught. Nimoy describes the script as absolute garbage. Um, When he's signed on, though, he realizes that he can't walk away or he'll be painted as a villain in the press. Screenwriter Harold Livingston finds himself caught in a tug of war with Gene Roddenberry, where Roddenberry keeps substituting his own drafts of the script in memos that are sent round to staff and to senior management. At one point, Eisner asks how the script got so bad from one version to the next, and it turns out Roddenberry had just substituted his version uh, for the script that Livingston had been sending round. Uh, very famously, or not very famously, but my own private connection to Star Trek The Motion Picture is I reviewed the uh, novelization. And in Sorry, that review... you you reviewed the novelization. Yes. Because I'm a huge freaking nerd. When? Uh, like 2013. When was the novelization released? Uh, 1979. <laughs> uh, I, I finally got around to it. Uh, as I said, I'm a huge freaking nerd. Uh, and so the novelization is written by Roddenberry. But I, re- I made an innocuous comment in there about how, look... 
Roddenberry, you know, he may have had his foibles as a showrunner, as a scriptwriter, as a business partner, as a human being. But, like, you gotta respect that he at least, like, let Alan Dean Foster and Harold Livingston keep their credits on the story and the screenplay of the motion picture. And I write that in my review. And I believe within 12 hours, science fiction legend Alan Dean Foster is in my comments saying, no. Gene Roddenberry tried to force us to put his name on the story and screenplay credits as well, and it was only by ta- threatening to take up legislation, sorry, uh, uh, you know, sort of to take you know a lawsuit. Basically, um, he managed to back off. So yeah, that's my that's my own little motion picture story, in terms of of Roddenberry as a kind of an influence on Star Trek and uh, Star Trek in general. But yes, the movie races towards did, production. <laughs> did he preface that comment by saying? Like wow, you're you're writing about this novelization. Like, um, was he was it, quite like, you know, he surprised or, or or kind of like, oh, um, you know, th- um, great to to to, to, to see, to see some, some actual after, engagement after so many years. Well, I suppose like with Star Trek, there's probably like stuff happening all the time. Not, well, but really- not, not 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 the quality of your. Um, stuff but, but a lot of stuff <laughs> that's that's one way of putting it um but yeah no no he was he was very nice he was very polite he wasn't like i've had i've had people who have been very obnoxious uh like i had a comic book writer say ha you misquoted me and i've had to actually reply to them no here's the interview snippet of you saying the thing that i i said that you said and then being like oh carry on then um but uh, no, Living Foster was very, very nice. Uh, but he was like, yeah, just so you know, uh, you are wrong when you say that Roddenberry didn't try to force his name into the credits. No, he did. We, we had to threaten legal action to stop him from doing so. Um, and again, we'll maybe talk about that when we get into the spoiler zone. The novelization for the motion picture is bonkers. Uh, it's very much Gene Roddenberry's hippie uh, free love manifesto, which is an interesting choice in 1979. But we'll get to that in the spoiler zone. That, <laughs> like that's kind of faithful to the to the movie, yeah, right? It is like, and faithful to, to Roddenberry's extent. vision of Star Trek, which we'll, we'll maybe talk about kind of later <laughs> on as well, because there are like, um, you know, is this horny talk- than Doctor Strange? Love that is a question I'm going to ask in the spoiler zone. I think. Um, I th- I, well, sorry, I won't answer yet. Or <laughs> like, considering we probably won't <laughs> get to that, yeah, I could just answer it now. Um, but and, and then obviously so like the the production is incredibly rushed they're rushing towards the deadline of the release what happens is they hire a special effects company uh, which is run by Robert Abel Bob Abel ironically it turns out that Bob Abel is not able to do the special effects that they need done within the time that they specify he's planning to use computer generated effects um, so they have to hire uh, Douglas Trumbull who is again uh, done lots of lots of work in lots of kind of classic special effects movies movies like Blade Runner for example uh, movies like for example Close Encounters of third kind uh movies like star wars even he worked on as well um and he's brought big he he did big big trumble in little china big trumble in little china well played well played (laughs) um but yes and then you also have like so he comes in at the last minute and they're working on the special effects down to the last minute and it's notable that like andrew you're going to be shocked to hear this one of the big changes between the version that was released in theaters in 1979 and the director's edition which is the one that we watched is that the director's edition has less exposition in it. Because, yeah, Andrew doesn't seem to quite believe that as a statement of fact. But yes, the theatrical cut of the movie contains a lot of lines like, 
oh, we're out of it, or oh, it's getting closer, or oh, it's getting larger. Because when they were filming it, uh, director Robert Wise didn't know whether or not the special effects were going to be done in time. So he would always have, like, the cast read the stage directions out loud. So you could just cut to Chekhov or cut to Sulu saying, we're out of it now, we're clear, it's getting closer, it's larger, uh, and all these sorts of things. So he could kind of slot those in just in case the effects weren't ready. Entering vagina. (laughs) We are penetrating. (laughs) Now we're we're exiting the aperture. (laughs) I believe it's sphincter, so we're... The sphincter appears to be closing. Another sphincter closing. <laughs> uh, permission to go in dry. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> believe Spock appears to be now flying towards... Spock a, does go in dry. Yeah, and he flies straight towards a giant Persis combata, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the movie is released in theatres. Um, no, no, it's, it's great. It's, it's a, a horny podcast. <laughs> Which is great. This is what happens when the two of us are are just alone, left alone on a podcast together. Um, but yeah, so that is the story of kind of like the motion picture. It's it's kind of like fractured production history, the tensions that were happening behind the scenes. Um, but we'll talk about more when we get into the spores and we'll talk about the plot, talk about specifically there. But before we jump in, Andrew, do you think that Star Trek, the motion picture, belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? No, um, it's... Um... It suffers from kind of luxuriating in s- slow, um, boring scenes. It has a lot to recommend it itself. And it's also like it's very much kind of like a relic, you yes. know. Like it, it's not it's not one of those movies where you where you look at it and you think kind of like how seminal this the um, this. This, this film is you look at it and it's like no, that was like the last time they were ever gonna like make, <laughs> get away with doing you know, that you know make, make, make a movie look like that um, it feels very daggy you know and um, kind of of its um, of its time yeah. um, undoubtedly uh, and again like very heavily influenced by like 2001 uh, Space Odyssey yeah. which was released like in 1968 when Star Trek yeah. was still on the air we- which which as I, I like we covered on the two fifty and I I've fallen asleep every single time, <laughs> including <laughs> the time that we covered it on the two fifty, <laughs> including the time that we covered it on the two fifty. I fell asleep. I think I might have sort of fallen asleep for this, but not quite. That, like, that was going to be my question. Like, so did the motion yeah. picture keep you awake? And does that mean the no, motion picture is better than two thousand and one: A Space Odyssey? <laughs> I I I I. I I found it difficult to 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 stay awake watching this. Maybe that like like you can you can say that that's my fault and that's fair enough. But like it's it 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 doesn't kind of score in that department. It does, um, as I say, have a lot to recommend. If there are there are great, um, well, I think Leonard Nimoy is winning. I don't think there. Are, there's an, an awful lot of great um, acting kind of our uh, performances kind of aside from that. Yeah, I, f- I, f- I feel feel like the, the others aren't probably as well served. Um, the fact that they were thinking of doing it without Nimoy <laughs> is alarming. <laughs> you know, they, 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 um, I, and as, as we said, the music is quite good. 
Um, Jerry Goldsmith's score is is amazing, and we'll talk about that in the yeah. spoiler zone because like I, f- I feel like this prefigures a lot of what is coming down the line, but not immediately. No, um, like I think there's something interesting about how this affects the evolution of Star Trek, but how it takes so long for that to materialize. Maybe an entire generation, but we'll get back to that. And it, it's it's very profound as well. Like it's a it's a very um, a deep, meaningful um, movie. Um, and I wonder kind of at what point in the kind of screenwriting process that all kind of came out. But certainly in the movie, it really only comes out towards the end, which we, um, and it feels maybe a failure of the movie, um, perhaps structurally not to somehow establish that. Because it, it, uh, I, I, I think in terms of the characters, Certainly with certainly with Kirk, I don't think the what the movie is about really speaks too much to his journey, but we can talk about that later. Yeah. I think I think it what's interesting about the treatment of Kirk and we'll yeah, again maybe talk about it later, is that like this is something that the Wrath of Khan ends up doing so much better. Um mm. like, like uh, there yeah. this hints at something that the Wrath of Khan kind of foregrounds, and I think the Wrath of Khan uses it much better. I think for for um the it works a lot better thematically with the character development of um Spock. Yeah. Um and that the other characters aren't very well served. Yeah. Yeah. At all. I would kind of like, I would kind yeah. of agree with that. Yeah. It's it's a very big ideas thing. And it's it's arguably very much an extension of the original show, where the original show also didn't really have characterization. I mean I as you said, I'm somebody who thinks far too much about Star Trek and should probably think less about Star Trek and would be healthier if I thought less about Star Trek. But I would argue that, like, the original series cast don't really become fully formed characters and three-dimensional people until you take Spock away at the end of The Wrath of Khan. Like, it isn't until uh, The Search for Spock that you start giving characters their moments, where Ohura gets, like, moments where she gets to, like, lock Mr. Adventure in the closet, where Sulu gets moments where he's like, don't call me Mr. Adventure, where, like, McCoy gets to, like, actually drive the plot of a a story being told. What's all this Mr. Adventure stuff? Oh, sorry, don't call me Tiny. Sorry, don't call me Tiny. That's what it is. Um, Don't call me... (laughs) Mr. Adventure is a recurring motif. Now, Mr. Adventure is the other transporter operator in, in, sorry, in Star Trek, The Search for Spock. But, like, until that point, they're all just very vaguely drawn abstract characters who can slot in and out, like, depending on what's necessary. Where, like, Sulu can disappear and his lines can be given to Chekhov while George Decay's off making the green berets. You know, that sort of stuff. Well, check off is a pair of eyebrows. Like, <laughs> That's another carry on movie. Like, <laughs> um, and some vague Russian stereotypes, and is somehow <laughs> arguably the most developed character in the ensemble. Um, so, but yes, in, he's a Yakov Smirnov routine, is what Chekhov is. If we're being entirely fair, um, but yeah, no, I I would agree with that. I think. I think you're right. I think, like, it's notable that this is Robert, Robert Wise's second-to-last film, right? The, on, the, la, the only other theatrical film after this that he directs is Rooftops, which is a crime thriller, and he also directs A Storm in Summer, which is a telemovie. But his career as a filmmaker, like, stretches back to, like, 1934. He worked as an editor, kind of, during the 30s and 40s. He worked with, um, he worked on Citizen Kane. He was the editor on Citizen Kane. 
uh, with Orson Welles. He took over the making of The Magnificent Ambersons as director when kind of uh, Welles left that. And he'd been kind of directing movies since the 40s. And again, a lot of his movies are classics, but they're classics in the mold of the old studio system. Movies like, say, The Body Snatcher, for example. Movies like Run Silent, Run Deep. Uh, the kind of Western, like, West, sorry, the musical, like West Side Story, for example. Or a film we'll be covering in a few weeks, which is like The Sound of Music. You have like Can science I- fiction... Sorry. Can I just say, like, ever since you mentioned Jacob Smirnoff, I've been trying to think of, like, what would that be? <laughs> you know, the, the, the in Soviet Russia, uh, new life, a new civilization seeks out you. you. <laughs> um, what, 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 what is that formulation? What, how, how, how does that work in a, you're probably more versed than Star Trek. No, no, it just means that like Chekhov's entire yeah. bit is like throughout Star Trek to be the Russian one. So he's like, you know, you know, this is like Russian, great Russian epic. You know, this is like, you know, it's like great Russian fairy tale, Cinderella, you know, that which is obviously a Star Trek six line as well. Um, but things like where he's like, like, like great Russian social commentator, Lenin. And everyone's like, ah, 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 ah. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, no. So like Chekhov's entire bit throughout Star Trek is to be the guy who goes, yes, Russia exists. Russia continues to exist. Just so we're clear. Very progressive. Yeah, in the 1960s. A very progressive view of, like, what the future looks like. Russia hasn't been colonized and destroyed by America after they won the Gold War. Notice capitalism hasn't won. Uh, Yes. is 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 Star Trek a future where the communists have won? Yes. Well, that's a, that's a big debate that's ongoing. But yes, is it a socialist utopian future? Because obviously, like, there is no salary. There is no money. What's that line from, I know you don't like First Contact, but we've, uh, we work to better ourselves and better humanity. We've evolved past greed. We have no need for money. Um, I'm a human. I don't have money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a line from In the Car. Are you continuing to watch Deep Space Nine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That in the cards, fantastic episode. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) but that that by the way is Ronald D. Moore spoofing the line that he wrote for First Contact. Uh, We work to better (laughs) ourselves for for the good of humanity. What does that mean? It means I don't have cash. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like. But anyway, so yeah, Robert Wise had been this director who kind of, he'd done like the Andromeda strain, he'd done The Sound of Music, he'd done like, um, obviously like one of the great science fiction movies, The Day the Earth Stood Still. But these are all kind of old classic movies that embody an old and classic style of Hollywood. And like, this is being released in 1979, the same year that you're getting like Apocalypse Now and all that jazz, where the new Hollywood movement is kind of coming crashing down around itself. And it does feel curiously old-fashioned and curiously out of place. And I'm gonna not going to lie, I kind of like that about it. But yeah, I would agree with you. I don't think it belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies. I think it kind of stands out for being old-fashioned. I think it's a little bit too derivative. I think it's very obvious that Roddenberry saw, like, you know, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but I, I kind of, I don't think that it deserves a place on the 250. Um, and what about your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? Would this be up there? Yeah, like like it 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 kind of might. It, 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 um, you know, if if this is my my um, good movie island, I guess. Yeah, it might. Be, be, be good. I mean, it's somewhat humorless, which kind of um, stands a bit against it. I think. Um, I think like. Undiscovered Country, um, 
Uh, I think all of the movies after this one, even like even say the Final Frontier, which maybe takes it too far, where you have I know the ship like the back of my hand, and then he hits his head off a beam. But all yeah. of the later movies have a much broader sense of humor than this does. Like according to Nimoy, Robert Wise would like any time that it looked like somebody was smiling on set, he'd call cut and he'd tell them to stop smiling. This is serious business. Yeah, and it just kind of it, it's horny, but it's not kind of it doesn't have like. A, a a a good kind of uh, sense of humor, and it, yeah, it's um, it's 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 probably over serious. But I love the final third of the movie, and the whole kind of um, the resolution. revelation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, not to get too spoilery, but this is arguably the the only Star Trek original series movie that doesn't have a, an anta- that doesn't have a villain. It has an antagonistic. I suppose Star Trek Four. Star Trek Four doesn't have a villain either, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's similar to Star Trek Four, really. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's something heading towards Earth, and the Enterprise is the only one that can stop it. Yeah, and it does that through a uh, slight spoiler, I guess, thematically, but it does that through peace, goodwill, and understanding, rather than torpedoing it yeah yeah so it's different to first contact kind of they um <laughs> no just in the sense no that, no like, it's, it's another it's, it's kind a, of something the, is coming to earth towards yeah. earth yes yeah 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 um <laughs> but no I, I i i i i thought it was great and i'm not talking about the kind of the the twist where you're like ah <laughs> that's what that was <laughs> yeah that's what it, Ah, I see. Yeah, it's there. There's there's a kind of like, um, how to cook humans. Yeah, how to serve humans. Yes, how um, to cook for to, humans. To serve man. Yeah, how to, to cook forty humans. Yeah, there is a very very similar reveal. How to cook for forty forty humans. humans. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I, you mean the general mood of the conclusion, the ambience of it, that kind of the vibe, well, of it, for lack of a better word. The the the, the um, I I I think there's a lot of uh, very kind of like profound sort of questions. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's it it's interesting because these are very kind of obvious questions that we don't kind of make explicit, and I think they relate to a lot of interesting things. Um, and I like the way the movie uh, 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 deals with that. And as I say, it's, it's, um, it relates a lot to kind of Spock's journey as well. So I, I, I think um, as a, uh, in terms of like crafting a movie, you've, you've tied it to a, um, to a character that Your you're character. familiar with. Yeah. No, I, so I, I I I liked it an awful lot, and it 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 ha, I have a real kind of a a soft spot um, for this movie. Um, so it it's it 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 certainly has a chance to be in my. And and for myself, I mean, I have this movie. I think. You, do you okay? So that 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 means it is um, by default. I think so. I think I have all of the Star Trek movies. Yeah, as, that means it joins Star Trek Five in your in your class. When I say all the Star Trek movies, I I mean kind of I think up to like I don't have any of the JJ Abrams. Abrams ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I kind of picked up that vibe. <laughs> I'd be surprised. That, like I. <laughs> I, 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 if I gifted you the three Abrams era movies, I'd be surprised if I mentioned it to you like, no, I, I still don't own them. I, 
They were only in the house 24 hours, Darren. That was all it took. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, for myself, um, yeah, for myself, I like the idea of this more than I like it, which is kind of an interesting place to be with a movie. I think mm. it's really interesting as arguably, like, and again, this is something I'm probably going to have to qualify when we get to the spoiler zone, but the Star Warsification of Star Trek. And I don't mean that in terms of, like, the J.J. Abrams of it, Andrew, which I know is, is something that we're a direction you could yeah. go with that. Because wasn't I don't it mean like J.J. Of- Abrams didn't didn't really like Star Trek? <laughs> it just kind, it was just kind of a... Yeah, it was it was just sort of a um a property. No, it it, it was what what I was going to say it was it was an um, audition. It was an audition for for Star Wars. Um Hi. I think I may, like I maybe he, wouldn't go that okay, but Yeah. Well, I I mean, did you you can't judge someone too harshly for not being um especially familiar with the property but um well i mean the same I, is true of nicholas myers like and again i know you don't like star trek 2 but you love star trek 6 and that's a similar situation oh, I do. myers myers you know hadn't watched star trek he wasn't a huge fan of star trek and he only came on when it was like okay you can do whatever you want with it and he's like okay i'm gonna turn it into horatio hornblower in space um it's it's much more military like i would argue that like the point where the franchise becomes really militaristic is 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 arguably myers stuff because the uniforms start to look like military uniforms for example there's a lot more ship to ship combat with wrath of khan and with wrath of khan and i mean even in say uh the undiscovered country there's also like the whole submarine warfare thing which i know dates back to like balance of terror and stuff like that but it's very much it's very much like we're going with a full nautical kind of like marine thing and i, I and i like i think that works things. quite well i think okay. they, 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 like i i i feel like um star trek movies with with at some point a space battle um preferably with a klingon war, bird of prey <laughs> <laughs> and so andrew's like yeah star trek 6 and star trek 7 are the sweet spots star trek 3 pretty good too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and, and uh, to be fair, I'm not really casting aspersions there. I think Star Trek Six is a masterpiece. I like Star Trek Two a lot. I think, like, I think that my point more is that, like, I'm I'm hesitant to judge people, as you said, for not being a fan of something and for approaching mm. something like Star Trek with like an outsider perspective and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. For myself, though, when when I say the Star Warsification of Star Trek, I don't mean in terms of like blockbuster turning it into a blockbuster. I mean it more in terms of. Like, turning it into a universe where it feels like it's real and it exists, and it feels like there is a logic outside of what you're seeing on the screen, and it feels like a large a large part of what I like about the motion picture, um, and this is the thing where it's like, I like and kind of hate about the motion picture, is that thing that you mentioned where because it's stretched out over two hours and 20 minutes, um, you really luxuriate in the world. Like, this is... I think this is the first time in the Star Trek franchise where you hear extended conversations in Klingon and Vulcan, and particularly you hear them back to back. It's like after Amok time, it's the first time, it's the second time you go to Vulcan, but it's Vulcan presented as a matte painting in this widescreen way that they obviously couldn't do on the 60s TV show. So it begins to feel like a real place that has a real history and a real texture to it. You get a lot of talk about things like rituals like Kalinar, like which feels again, reminds me of like how Lucas approached Star Wars, where it's like, oh, you do the Kessel Run and we did the Kessel Run in 14 parsecs or, you know, like the Clone Wars and all this sort of stuff where you're building mythology. Sorry, Andrew. 
No, can I say the the, the um, am I right in saying that it's not actually Klingon, or 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 that it, it it's it, well, it's not actually Klingon in the sense that it's um, it that 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 it retconned Klingon. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, in in that, like, I think it is it Mark you, Mark Mark Ockren? You take is the it? few phrases and then and then you try to kind of like um, uh, backwards engineer a language, but uh, but also take a few rules where you get the the least kind of common um, uh, grammar um, yeah. that you, you can conceive of, and yeah. You're entirely right. Like this is just people making random noises with their mouths. Like it's not a, yeah. it's not an actual language in the sense that like Klingon would become a language that Mark Ockrand would publish like books of phraseology on or dictionaries. It's on Duolingo. Um, it, um, it's on Duolingo. Can, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You can you can learn Klingon on Duolingo. Um, but again, I think we talked about this before. That could be like, your thing, thing Darren. <laughs> that could be my thing <laughs> if you want another thing. I can put that down on my dating profile. Uh, but uh, chick- you can also have a Paris. <laughs> But well, the this, thing, the, this is my parrot. I think I think Ockrand, as I recall, comes on board with uh, Star Trek Two when he does the Vulcan conversation between Savak and Spock in Star Trek Two, and then it's Star Trek Three yeah. is where Klingon begins to be an actual language. Here it I, is, yes, it is just noises, and here I, Vulcan I, is just noises. But the idea is that it's they're not speaking English. Like this no. movie is treating the Star Trek universe like George Lucas treat, treated the Star Wars universe in 77 as a place that actually exists. Where, like, during the original run of the show, obviously it's a 1960s TV show, there was relatively little continuity. Like, when the Klingons appeared, it was never the same Klingon twice, for example. Their makeup I, would change randomly between episodes, so they'd become more or less racist, depending on, like, who was writing the script and what the script was saying about them. Um, by the way, I, I, I love the story about the search for Spock. And Christopher Lloyd, who got really into learning Klingon, realizes that he's made a mistake, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh no, we have to do it again." And was it, 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 it Leonard it, Nimoy directed it? Yeah, yeah. Leonard, <laughs> um, I, but I don't. I don't think it was Leonard Nimoy. I think it might. It might have been like an assistant director was okay. like, <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> "No, actually, no. That's fine. What you said." In the context, you don't have to, in Klingon, you don't have to include a pronoun. So, um, <laughs> you know. Um, and that's uh, why he, the language works. The language the then changed based on a mistake that Christopher Lloyd made. Yeah, um, <laughs> which, yeah. which is great. Like, and, and again, um, but yeah, like the idea is that, yeah, that this is a universe that actually, like you get weird things like there's a whole tangent where they can't go to warp inside a solar system or something like that, which has nothing to do with the plot of the movie that you're watching Last like 10 to 15 minutes it feels like it's kind um, of a problem with like the it's one reason why this movie isn't very good yeah is that like that doesn't really kind of follow from i mean well it doesn't add anything you, to the plot it doesn't add anything it, like it maybe lets you know that decker knows the enterprise a bit better than kirk but it spends far too long doing that for that dramatic payoff yeah i mean yeah, it's it takes it even yeah. like slows down. slow motion. Yeah. It goes slow motion. Like it's one of those like moments the, the movie's rubbing it. It's like the overture. It's like the movie's rubbing its like luxuriance in your face. It's like no, you 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 will sit and watch I, this. Yeah, I think you could have gotten there far more kind of economically. Yeah, you know where you get that across that kind of um, yeah that Decker knows the Enterprise and that. Um, Kirk is now out of his depth or doesn't have the same experience with the refit yeah, or whatever. Yeah, he's forgotten all his passwords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, I, I kind of, so 
like, but I like that. That's kind of what I like about it is the way in which, like, it's it, like Decker. Just um, find out, find out what's on next. Um, <laughs> for um, uh, eight eight eight. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> sir, we we no longer use teletext. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but yeah, and like even things like the way in which like the production design like looks like again, it looks like Star Wars. It looks more real. It looks like it doesn't look like plywood sets. It looks like these places are inhabited. The way in which like you know, I just I like the vibe of the movie where it's like no, the Star Trek universe is a place that exists and is bigger than the show was able to make it be. And I find myself kind of liking that aspect of the movie, even if I recognize that it's also a problem because it means that the movie has these long, long tangents that don't go anywhere or contribute in any meaningful way to the expansion of the plot or the movement forward. And I guess I kind of, yeah. It's a weird kind of a um, expansive world where um, there are no other spaceships within range. Yeah of earth (laughs) (laughs) that could possibly do this mission yes Uh, yeah it's like we um there are lots of other ships but they're nowhere near earth Earth. there's nothing between the klingons and earth just like just to put that in perspective like the klingons are just wandering around in space and there's just a clear line from where the klingons are hanging out to earth um it's like, you don't see a problem with this. It's like, yeah, Starfleet Command has some issues. They maybe haven't been on their best this the last couple of years. I feel like they're just exploring. <laughs> and they know Earth fairly well. That's fair. That, that's very. That's a very Star Trek, uh, the motion picture viewpoint. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but I do I do kind of like that aspect of it. But I also do find that it's, it's something that, like, makes it feel like a slog to watch. Particularly when you are watching it with a purpose, like we were, where we're like, we're going to have to talk about this. As opposed to it being just like a warm bath you can kind of slip into. Uh, but I do think that, yeah, I think it, this is like a turning stone for the franchise. It's arguably like a huge influence on the next generation when we talk about how in the spoiler zone. It does feel like it sets a template for what's going forward. And I would argue... That the novelization written by Gene Roddenberry is arguably, you know, the franchise's core text. It's it's the heart of Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek. It is the most distilled vision of what Roddenberry yeah, wanted Star Trek to it, be, for better and for worse. It does feel of a kind with kind of early next generation. series of Next Generation, yeah. Yeah, it, it feels very much like a manifesto as much as a motion picture, which is interesting. It's all kind of like short skirts and, <laughs> yeah. and just oh, and, really, and- really daggy. Yeah, Daggy is what Australians say when it's kind of like embarrassingly unfashionable kind of. Um, and I mean, there is also like an empathic, uh, beautiful woman who had an affair with the first officer when he was on her home world and then he left, but they're reunited working together on the Enterprise. But also he wants to be captain one day, but he's got an awkward relation with the actual captain. And it's like, oh, my God, you, you did literally just copy and paste these character descriptions into your Bible for the next generation. Like, so it's very it, clear that Decker is Riker and Ilya is You got to write the second time, though. It's like choosing Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> yeah. And no, not a sex offender. Yeah. Crucially. Not exactly. a pedophile. Not, a, not, a, not somebody who, yeah, has the child pornography conviction. That was a good choice. I feel like they made the right choice. Absolutely. All right. That is the last time we're going to acknowledge that on this podcast. <laughs> um, all right, then. And then third and final question, Andrew. If listeners- the guy who played Decker. The guy Terrible. who played Decker. The guy from Collins. Seventh Heaven. Yes. <laughs> like um, the Christian TV show. Yeah. Turns out he's terrible. Yeah. Um, 
And like it was great because he was he was particularly like he was, I believe, very mean towards like is it Jessica Beale or whatever when she was doing her like posing um for magazines and stuff towards the end of her time on Seventh Heaven. He was very much like, Oh well that's that's very disreputable. We can't be having that. Heard you when you were underage. Thank you, Angie. Is is what he said. Um all right, so would you recommend, listeners, if they have not seen the motion picture, would you recommend they pause the podcast and watch it? And, question, if you remember, was there a difference between the version that we watched and the version that you remember? Like, do you have a yeah. preference for either? Oh, you do, okay. Yeah, definitely. It, 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 there, um, there were impressive sequences where it felt like, but it kind of, uh, it, 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 I was impressed but then I I think I was watching with you and I was I was kind of like oh yeah no of course this isn't this isn't the movie this is like it remastered. Um, and know, to be they, fair, there are very few of there was one particular sequence there where they used CGI, but a lot of the stuff is the model. A lot of the stuff is just the model cleaned up. And oh, stuff. is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, there um, was a moment where you asked, "This was 2001, right?" Referring to the 2001 release of the director's edition, not 2001: A Space Odyssey. That was right. very confusing for me. Uh, <laughs> so but, maybe I misunderstood your answer then. <laughs> um, but would would you recommend? No, that that was that was a CGI. It's a very obvious CGI yeah. shot. That one in particular. Um, would I recommend that people watch this? Yes. G- um, give it a chance. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it is. A very, um, it's a very boring movie. <laughs> Harlan Ellison but, but, described it as the motionless picture, which is a criticism <laughs> that has very much stayed with it. But it's, um, it's uh, rewarding. Um, I think, kind of intellectually, and um, and you're going to maybe listen to us talk about it. I guess the people who are listening to this probably seen it loads of times. It's probably fair. <laughs> um, or have probably like checked it out or curious about the director's edition that's kind of coming out or is available on Paramount Plus or whatever. But yeah. Nobody's like, hey, I love Star Wars. There's <laughs> these two guys who talked about it for a few hours. I want you to listen to it. Then you can make up your own mind. So, <laughs> um, yeah. That I, is a scenario. I don't know. <laughs> Do you know I, 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 have you met many people in the wild who are like listening to your uh, podcast? No, I think you've met a couple of people who listen to the podcast. Yeah, which is very like, bizarre. Like, uh, a few people now through work who didn't realize. I, I don't think that that it was uh, that it was me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is which which is strange. Um, I've yeah. I've had a few people do that with me on the radio where they're like I was like I was just like hey that guy sounds kind of like Darren and it was like oh wait that was Darren um, <laughs> um yeah um all right so in terms of recommendations from myself I guess yes to be uh, a successful humble brag <laughs> you have to you have to draw um some attention to how you were flubbing something and somebody heard you on the radio and says. Who's yeah. that Egypt? Yeah, and then it's that sounds like Darren. And it's like, and it was me on the radio. It's like, you know who'd be good at that? Darren. And it turned out to be Darren, who was apparently not good at it. Um, <laughs> um, You're great, Darren. But um, 
but yeah, um, in terms of recommendations for myself, yes, I, I would I would recommend it. I mean, again, it is very slow. It, it it is a movie that luxuriates. It very much indulges in your patience. It is not a movie that earns your attention minute to minute. It's not a no. It's not a movie that is like go 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 from the moment it starts. It's more like look, you bought a ticket to the motion picture. You know what you're getting. You want Star Trek, and you want a lot of it, right? Well, we have a lot of Star Trek for you. It depends. It depends on your youth, I guess. Oh, in terms of how much closer to death you'll be, like when when you finish yeah. it, is that it's like no, uh, like I think when I was younger, I was able to just kind of like watch it. Although I think I've referenced being a kind of a um, a child with a decent kind of like attention span, but but that that that, that now I'm old and and tired, and that I'll fall asleep watching things. <laughs> There was a moment where I think you, like, there was a moment where you audibly sighed at one of the indulgences in this that we will talk about <laughs> when we get into the spoiler zone. Where I was just sitting beside you and you were, like, ready to make a note, ready for the next scene to start. And I don't know if you said, oh, God, or if you just went, oh. uh, But you did make yeah. a noise when the scene continued to happen. <laughs> um, like, like you, you'd want to watch this when you're not tired. Yes. Probably you don't want to have eaten too much, especially, <laughs> like, kind of turkey. Yeah, it's got the digestion going. You maybe want like a mid-afternoon, lazy afternoon, Sunday afternoon. We did watch it on Sunday Watch it at the gym, the- actually. <laughs> oh, so you have to stay awake. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if, if you have like a... A TV or a phone. People do that, don't they? Oh, they watch it yeah, with their headphones and they watch what they... Yeah, put the while they're on like a treadmill or... Okay, yeah. so, so, so watch this two-hour, 20-minute movie while running on a treadmill, apparently. You can go as slow as you like. Yeah, just just as long as you're moving and keeping yourself refreshed and awake. Um, that that sounds rather harsh. That sounds rather mean. But yes, I I would recommend it. I do think that if you are looking for a gateway into Star Trek, this is probably not it. Uh, I think you should maybe start with. I would argue with like the Wrath of Khan is probably a better, more exciting, more conventional blockbuster movie. Watch all of the Next Generation until you get to the point where you're kind of like. Um, well, maybe start to... at the third season of the Next Generation. Maybe don't go into the Next Generation cold. Um, I do like. Yeah. It, is it Brent Spiner's observation that he's really glad they got all their racism out early? Like <laughs> he looks back on the show and he's really thankful that their second episode was their most racist episode because it means they only improved from there. Um, which I kind of I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Ferengi. This is this is going to be our thing. Yeah, yeah. Could we make them more Jewish? Do we think we could make them more? (laughs) What if we hired more Jewish actors? Um, But yeah, no, I'm thinking more like the planet of the black people and the planet of the women. That's more specifically what I'm what Spiner was referencing. (laughs) Like, there's one more. Like the second episode. I do. I do love that the Ferengi are are kind of redeemed in yes um, in Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. Yeah. By. A Jewish writer, Ira Stephen Barrow, we should remark. Uh, and a pres- presumably J- a Jewish um, actor. actor and, uh, Ar- yeah, Armin Shimmerman, Shimmerman and Max Grodenschuk. Yeah. Um, so no, that was a very conscious rehabilitation of them. And Wallace Shawn as well, actually, we should acknowledge as well. Yes. Um, two fi- the 250s Wallace Shawn. Um, <laughs> who was just starting his career in 1979, where he has a small speaking role in All That Jazz. Um, all right. Um, and yes, so I would recommend it. Uh, maybe not as a gateway. If you're trying, if you're going to try Star Trek, maybe start the third season of The Next Generation. Maybe would start you, with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Would you recommend people watch the original series? Or is it like a little bit um, 
uh, tough and kind of um, in in terms of being kind of hit hit or miss, and that there's a lot there that there's a lot of that there's a lot of episodes that aren't especially good. What's that line from Fry? Eighty episodes, about twenty good ones, um, which is a bit mean. I think I think the ratio is probably somewhere closer to forty. Um, but even even good episodes sometimes don't really know what they're doing or how yeah. to do it. Oh yeah, well, I mean, there, there, there's there's a famous. You probably know the name of the episode where where, okay, where hit me with the description. It's, it's going to be embarrassing if I can't. One side of his face is black, the other is white. Oh, let that be your last battlefield. Let that be your last season. battlefield. Starring Frank Gorshin, the Riddler from um, Batman. Exactly. Where's this great kind of like not subtle? As Bella and Loki. I'm going to stop talking now because I'm going to just Metaf- naming details from the episode. Did <laughs> you? No, but it's this great kind of not subtle metaphor about racism. <laughs> then it doesn't really know how it, yeah. and they just uh, chase each other. And at the end of the, and it also kind of it's a race. It's a metaphor for racism where it suggests that like both sides need to calm down. Like that's the core like metaphor. It's like, well, Bella, you're oppressing Loki. It's like, okay, so Bella, stop oppressing Loki, and you're like, okay, the episode gets it. And that's like, Loki, stop being so upset that you're being oppressed. Maybe relax and take a chill pill. And it's like, okay, all right, back up there. Um, yeah, there, there, there's quite a fair whack of that. Like, there's a lot of stuff where you watch it where you can tell it's written by, like, Second World War veterans who are, like, not entirely sure what hippies are. And not entirely sure that they like hippies very much. Um, like, for example, where Spock goes to the planet of the spores. Or Kirk goes to the planet where the kids have taken over. Or Ki- Kirk goes to the planet where evil angels are mind-controlling children to murder their parents. Um, or other episodes where insanity is spreading across the cosmos like a cosmic virus. <laughs> or one where hippies are going to look for Eden, but Eden turns out to be a poison planet. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that's very, like, 60s in a lot of interesting ways. I, I actually do. I would, like... If you want to try the original series, and if you are not put off by the fact that it's like 60s production values or 60s production values, I say give it a go. The first eight episodes are rough, uh, but I think after that, the season builds. And the first season, like, has, like, Balance of Terror is the ninth episode. It's phenomenal. It has, like, Errand of Mercy, which is amazing. It has A Taste of Armageddon, which is fantastic. It has Devil in the Dark, which is arguably the best Star Trek story that's ever been told. And The City on the Edge of Forever is the penultimate episode of the season and is just an amazing love story. Um, so yeah, if you are, if you do feel an urge to try Star Trek, do try Star Trek. Try the first season, jump in there. Notice that it will get rocky uh, towards the end of the second and in the third season. But the first... And City se- at the Edge of Tomorrow, that's the Pike one, isn't it? City at Forever, sorry. City at the Edge of Forever. Is that the Pike um, kind of um, story? No, that's the Menagerie, um, that, oh, which is also the sorry. Cage. The City on the Edge of Forever is the one where Kirk travels back to the Second World War and falls in love with Edith Keeler, who's played by, uh, what's her name? Famous actor, uh, Joan something or other. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm an idiot. I'll be like, I'm an idiot. Um, Joan Collins. To the Fact Machine? To the Fact Machine. Joan Collins? Joan Collins. And we're back from the back machine. I got it right. It was played by Joan Collins. So I did get there eventually. So congratulations me, I guess. That's the one with the, <laughs> the guardian, guardian on the Edge of Forever, which is the big donut that talks to them. And like McCoy goes through and he saves Edith and it prevents World War... Sorry, it prevents America from entering World War II, which destroys the entire universe. 
And then Kirk has to go back and he falls in love with her, but he has to let her die. Famous for featuring one of the first uses of the word hell on American television, where Kirk says, let's get the hell out of here. Um, none of this is ringing any bells with Andrew. Um, if you want to check it out on Netflix, I would hardly recommend that episode then as well. I don't know if I've seen it, but I'm familiar with it. Okay. Um, yeah. Through pop cultural osmosis. Maybe I have. I don't know. I'm <laughs> I'm aware that there is this episode. Okay. It's the one that was written by Harlan Ellison, but was Harlan then like... Ellison. Yeah, but was then radically rewritten by everybody in the Star Trek writer's room. And apparently, like, Roddenberry had to fight to keep Ellison's name on the script. Um which is, is quite quite something. It's a very, very, very storied history. And then um, Roddenberry, being Roddenberry, would travel around like circuits and do like uh, fan conventions and claim that Ellison had written a script where Scotty was dealing drugs, which is not in Ellison's script as somebody who has read Ellison's script. But Roddenberry was not a man you crossed, um, which is something we will maybe come back to on the other side of the spoiler zone. So, Andrew, what is Star Trek The Motion Picture about for you? Star Trek The Motion Picture is very clear in what is it about, what what it is about. Did you find your notes in the end? I did, I did. Star Trek The Motion Picture is about the search for purpose. And it, 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 it relates to so many things. It relates to the idea of the responsibility of parents and also the existential questions that uh, people ask themselves. But also... The, the, what is the meaning of life? What, what is my purpose? Yeah, but it, this movie puts across um, a, an idea that we are not you know, uh, meat puppets that we have this spiritual dimension that separates us from a kind of a scientific physical world that doesn't account for itself. And when, when you, when you create um, something that has consciousness, like a child. Yeah. Or say a sentient probe that ventures across the cosmos, trying to make contact with its creator, hypothetically speaking. There's a natural question for, for that, for that sentient probe to ask is like, why did you make me? Yeah. What am I for? Um, and the, 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 the um, there's a, a line I think that Spock has, um, it knows only that it needs, it knows not but what. like so many of us, it knows not what, um, or it does not know what, um, or no, <laughs> it knows not what is better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be um, fair, they were writing this on a very tight turnaround. But yeah, they, 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 this being is empty, it's incomplete, and it's searching, which is kind of what 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 um, what a lot of us are yeah are doing. That would that would that but it's 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 literalizing us. Is the 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 being asks, um, why am I here, and is this all I am, and is there nothing more? So and 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 that these these the these are very profound questions, and the movie kind of suggests that um, we have this ability that the 
uh, V'ger, the entity Vax. I mean, we we can we can explain the movie a bit, but presumably people have just watched it. But if you haven't, um, and like to listen to these, in spite of not having seen the movie, there is an alien threat. There is an al- sorry. There is an alien threat heading towards Earth. A gigantic cloud. It's it's, it's heading towards Earth. It's absorbing things as it goes. And what it turns out to be is it's the Voyager space probe has been assimilated by a planet of artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, far into the cosmos. That gave it the capacity. Yeah, gave it the capacity to absorb to to fulfill its purpose, and its purpose was to study and to learn everything there was to know about the universe. Yes. So it it, it it's it, the way the way it achieves this is by absorbing. Um, uh, the universe itself like yeah. the the, the uh, data is matter is energy yeah. so it's it's um it's swallowing like uh sp- spaceships and arrays and planets and everything kind of in its wake um and it wants to bring that back to its creator to say i've done what you've asked me to do why you know, kind of like, 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 tell, tell, tell me that it was worth it. I guess, yeah. Um, or give me something, or explain to me why, why I did this. That, yeah, why I am what I am. It's a bit, it, 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 giving consciousness to something that can't uh, create its own purpose, which, 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 which is, which is what humans do, and it's the ability that we give then to, to, to to V'ger, to create its own purpose, um, along with a lot of silly human emotions. And it's a, and, and Decker um, wants to fulfill um, V'ger because he wants to write. <laughs> um, yes, he wants to write Elia, who is played by Persis Combata. Um, and yeah, again- who's forbidden from writing. Yeah. <laughs> she, she yes, she's taken an oath that. of celibacy that is on record, <laughs> despite Chekhov's um, eyebrow raising at various points over the course of the movie. Um, it's like, ah, it's like <laughs> oh. this is this is some um, like idealized future. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, <laughs> in, I, lo- in... I love that. We, I love that we dealt with the big essential stuff, but now we're talking about the horny stuff. Like this is the thing with with Roddenberry, right? Where. I would argue that there's there, the reading of the motion picture is that the motion picture is, and again, we talked about how it's old and it's outdated by 1979 when New Hollywood is like up to its coke-filled gills making movies about how great it is, where like Francis Ford Coppola's going off to Vietnam and Bob Fosse's like, I'm going to di- dictate my own death. But things like say... You're on a Bob Fosse. I, I am. You're, with, you're, with, yes. you're following uh, Blank, uh, Blank Check. Check. I watched all five Bob Fosse movies. We'll talk about it when we talk about another Rob Wise movie in a couple of weeks because it's more germane there. Um, but yeah, so it's like you're you're watching kind of those movies, but the motion picture often seems to be about the end of the 60s because it's about this idea that you had this like utopian consciousness expansion stuff in the 60s where like everybody's like there was a chance for real social change. There was a chance for things to really move forward and progress. But those movements kind of collapsed into themselves. Uh, they kind of like lost conscious or connection with the mainstream and we talked about like network is about that and like invasion of the body snatchers which is another 1979 movie starring like leonard nimoy is also about that 
But like you have here, for example, you have like Leonard McCoy showing up with his big bushy beard saying, you know, in parlance, I was drafted looking like he's looking like a hippie. He's washed up. He's burnt out. He has a big bushy beard when he shows up. He has an open chest and medallions dangling on it as well. You have things like Spock, who's he, he's gone. He, he was transported because he, he didn't want to get no plane. <laughs> Uh, but you have like Spock, for example, who's going through this process of like removing the last vestiges of emotion from himself so he can become like an unfeeling machine, very similar to V'ger. But like what happens that breaks him from that is he has this kind of almost psychic transcendental experience mm. where he hears the creature inside his head, which again, very like Timothy Leary, very kind of like freak out, kind of like 1960s psychedelia thing. And that brings kind of Spock back. But you have, I think... To bring it back to the horniness, because the horniness is inseparably tied to all of this, you have Roddenberry, who is arguably kind of on this wave of like 1960s counterculture now, which is kind of weird, given he was a police officer and a kind of a soldier during the Second World War. He served in the Air Force, um, but he's on this counterculture kick, particularly in the late 70s. Um, and a large part of that seems to be driven by horniness uh roddenberry is famously and historically uh something of a horn dog um he was very famously like the story that he tells about the first star trek pilot you probably know the story about the first star trek pilot and about spock and number one right the story where like he shows the pilot with with pike in it to to nbc and there's a first officer who's a woman and there's spock and the story that roddenberry tells is that well nbc said well look Net audiences in the 60s, they will accept either an alien or a woman. You can't have both. And Roddenberry's ha 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 joke is, well, I kept the alien and I married the woman. Uh, and it's all very charming. What's recently come to light from internal memos inside NBC is that Roddenberry, who was married at the time, was having an affair with Majel Barrett, who was playing the first officer. And NBC said, you can't cast your mistress in this show that you're making hire another actress. And Roddenberry was like, I'm not doing that. So he said, sorry, honey, NBC said you can't be in the show. But yeah, that's apparently what drove that. And while he was making The Next Generation, he was apparently simultaneously having affairs with Majel Barrett, who would go on to be Majel Barrett Roddenberry, his wife, but also Nichelle Nichols as well, uh, while also in his own marriage uh, as well. Good old Gene Roddenberry there. And it's been noted that like some... Who's the computer? (laughs) She is. She's the computer on The Next Generation. And she's also Deanna Troy's mother. Uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation as well, which is notable for how much the show spends talking about how great it is to see her naked. Like, it, it again, a lot, of, a lot of Roddenberry's ideas for this end up filtering through The Next Generation, including, like, you mentioned Elias' oath of celibacy. Like, it's very notable that Deanna Troy, like, is a betazoid, and they are all about nudity. Like, they have nude weddings. Like, it's a major plot point in Haven that, like, all the cast are going to have to get naked uh, for Diana Troy's kind of wedding. Um, and, like, you you have, like, this recurring gag where Gene Roddenberry's wife, Majel Barrett Roddenberry, keeps showing up naked at various points over the course of the next generation. Which is, you know, I mean, look, it no judgment there, but it, it is kind of, like, very much if you want to understand uh, Roddenberry as a filmmaker. It's also notable that his only other film production credit outside of Star Trek is... The interesting thing is how kind of um, stuck up people are about nudity in the future. Because I I understand that um, obviously it's all being broadcast in a rather like puritanical world. Yes, which is a big... That's arguably a problem. Like when you watch the shows try to do it, the problem is that they can't dictate, they can't depict 
the utopian reality that like Roddenberry wants to show. Do you remember Riza? It's like the the, the um, Starship Troopers. Oh, where they're all showering. Where for for Hoven finally sh- gets to show <laughs> like what Unisex he wants to show rooms. in Robocop. What other movie would he have tried that in, Andrew? Robocop, obligatory Robocop. <laughs> it's uh, much like Robocop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like and, and like Roddenberry's only other like screenplay credit is Pretty Maids All in the Row, which is like a sex comedy, like from nineteen seventy one, for example. And like it's notable again how weirdly horny this movie is, where like penetrating feature is like a major recurring motif. Where like you have the moment where Spock, like again, it's all very you- gentle. Oh yeah, no, no, it's very it's lovely, like, very kind caressing. of soothing, kind of like there's lots of like candles and kind of yeah. Like it, 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 it's very slow and. And he yeah. he does wait until the muscle is relaxed. Yeah, he's he's very like he knows that he needs to time his. Th- he literally does have to time his thrust properly in order to make sure that he gets through the orifice. Um, but then you have like he goes through and it's it is like Elia herself and it's her with her head kind of thrown backwards as well, like glowing with energy as Spock kind of thrusts towards her. And I remember thinking, wow, as a kid, I missed all of this. Because it is, it, it feels very much like kind of again. You can feel the influence of Roddenberry here. Like, have you read? Have you? You've ne- I assume you have not read Roddenberry's novelization of the motion picture. Funnily enough, no. Do you want to know where Jim Kirk got his name? Of course I do, Darren. Because like you, you read these things that other people don't have to, and can enjoy the discomfort vicariously. James yeah. Tiberius Kirk was named for his mother's first love instructor. That's why he's called James, in honor of his mother's first love instructor. Um, there's also an extended... First, su- but not the last. <laughs> she, love very bad student. She had to repeat several times. What's um, a love instructor? Um, in the future, there aren't really families anymore. There are more like pods of people and like people are more open about sex, which is That's theoretically like, good. Um, yeah, they, in the in the kibbutzes, there weren't really families. Like in Israel... The yeah. the the um the, oh, okay. there were there were just kind of like communities, so the children would all be kind of like amongst raised uh, collectively. Yeah, okay. yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but yeah, like the, so the idea is that there's more of these pods of people, and like love instructor is somebody who teaches you the act of. It love is making. a socialist. Um, oh, absolutely. So, so did they? Okay, and, and and it's also kind of Manson family. Yeah, yes, in terms of like late sixties, it's very much well. That that's the thing. It's like, like they're, cultishness. Yes, and like that that becomes kind of a vibe on the next generation, where like it really feels like Roddenberry's writing a manifesto for how he thinks mankind should be, which is naked most of the time, often thinking about having sex with each other just randomly. But you have things like, for example, like Kirk talks about how you have like unimines and people who are blending their minds on the planet, and how he is an old-fashioned, outdated model of humanity, unlike the so-called new humans who live on the planet. But there's one sequence in particular which is like arguably the most Roddenberry moment and it's kind of it's only implied in the movie but like the the book has an extended chapter on it. It's the moment where like Elia comes back as the probe and Kirk like talks to Decker and he's like you need to connect with that and you need to like restoke whatever emotional attachment there was because we might be able to break through because again it's it's a movie very much about emotion and feeling. you've told me this. Yeah. And so in the novel there's an extended like chapter or kind of like a a segment of a chapter where Kirk in his internal monologue like breaks down and is like look 
she has an emotional attachment to Decker. If we're going to break through, he has a decent chance of doing it because of that pre-existing emotional connection. However, I am James T. Kirk. I know that I'm much better at making love than Decker is. So yeah, it would be more appropriate. Yeah. James James Kirk's mother showed him how to make love. And and her doctor her, her love her instructor love was was one of the best. Yeah. So Kirk's like, so is the solution to this problem I'm gonna have to step in and, and like, you know, either instruct Decker on how to make love or like make love to a lion myself in why, order to why is his mother naming him anyway? Why doesn't this, why isn't it the love instructor that names people? <laughs> like if if they're not living with their parents. It's a very fair point. Um but yeah, like that that kind of vibe, which is a very Roddenberry plot point. But yeah, there is a moment in this where it's like, look, Decker, if I order you to sleep with the computer. Oh, very upsetting, by the way. What? <laughs> like this whole kind of like weird kind of seventies like <laughs> gross oh, kind of californian oh oh, oh yeah yeah no it, we've like again this is this is we talk about this whenever we talk about 70s movies there's a real ickiness kind of almost like a stickiness when you kind of touch them where it's like yeah no i don't really want to get into that too much um really re- re- relating to uh true detective season two <laughs> which again i i think isn't as bad as uh, as its as, reputation uh, kind of suggests yeah. I mean, and, and again, though, like, but you do have the moment where, like, again, where where Kirk is like, look, Decker, if I order you to screw the probe, you're going to screw the probe, just so we're clear on this. Um, but, like, it is interesting how much of this is, as you said, very emotional and, like, very, very tied up in the idea that that understanding of the universe isn't necessarily rational. Like, Well, yeah, rationally speaking, transporter travel is actually the safest way to travel. <laughs> Well, well done, Andrew. Statistically speaking. Statistically uh, speaking. <laughs> to quote well, another people... <laughs> 1979 movie, um, which is quite quite perfect there as well. But yeah, like the the idea that you have that it's like, so like throughout the original series, like Spock's entire arc is he wants to reject his human side. Like he's embarrassed by his human side. Whenever his human side comes out, he's humiliated and he doesn't want anything to do with it. And he wants to be more rational. He wants to be more in command of himself, more in control of his faculties. His emotions are dangerous and volatile. Like again, like a mock time is a great example where it gets out and he he thinks that he kills Kirk um, and he has to like regain control of himself. Whereas once you get to the motion picture and then arguably like through the rest of the films, because like that's arguably big Spock's big arc. And again, like you can argue the motion picture kind of like rethreads the character arcs for both Kirk and Spock over the next four or five movies. But you have the idea that here Spock is the opposite. Spock learns that his emotions are part of himself and he can't hide them or he shouldn't try to hide them and he needs to connect with them. And he needs them to well, understand the universe like V'ger does. He has been gifted with something that V'ger doesn't have, which is that spiritual dimension yeah. that V'ger lacks. And that's... It's our, our supernatural quality Yeah, is what uh, V'ger needs. And it's incapable of... Yeah, because this is a movie about looking for God. This is a movie yeah. in some ways about looking for God, isn't it? Like it's, it's it is. But it, it's all... I I think it's arguably about um, a a a child, or anything that is kind of like created. Yeah. Um, and and which I mean, includes mankind, could, arguably. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you could stretch that. Like you okay. could say, like they, they, they um, you could say that um, we create stories, and that those stories ought to kind of serve something. And they live beyond ourselves. Again, this is the yeah. idea of like Star Trek existing beyond the original series. What is its purpose? That sort of thing. So yeah, exactly. no, that's a very very fair point there. But yeah, you mentioned kind of like Spock's arc, and like Spock does have the kind of strong arc of the movie. This is Spock's movie, and you arguably due to like Nimoy's influence where Nimoy was very much like Shatner was just happy to be there and happy to get the paycheck and was like yeah I'm making a movie uh whereas it feels like Nimoy was very much kind of standing there trying to protect the character of Spock as best he could and trying to ensure that Spock had art does a very successful job yeah of it too yeah I mean I think we talked about this I think like I like Shatner as an actor. I think Shatner is underrated or underappreciated as an actor. I think what he's doing is very good. But I think Nimoy is just next level. Level. I think Nimoy is, with the possible exception of Patrick Stewart, the best actor the franchise has ever had. Um, Andrew is just running a quick mental catalog in his head. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd say, um, I'd say he might be better than than, than Stewart. Than Stewart, maybe. But yeah, they that that. That it would kind of be the 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 two of them, um, and like yeah, it, it, this is kind of Spock's movie, which I think makes sense because Spock is. I think it's the strongest character, perhaps. Yeah, like the combination of kind of an actor and a character, yeah. where where I think um, because I think I think I think Picard is closer to like a human being than a yeah. character, you know. And I think that it takes Picard longer to come out of his shell as well. Like, there's a while where they don't know what to do with Picard and Stuart is doing all of it himself. Um, where you look at something like, say, Time Square. Sorry, this is a very nerdy podcast where I was just like, I'm just going to drop episode names here. Because something like, say, Time Squared in the middle of the second season of The Next Generation. And that's an episode that Stuart carries, even though the script has nothing going on in it. Because it's like, yo, Stuart has found something to play there. But yeah, it takes a while to get there. And obviously you have things like, the, the famous quote from Stuart where Stuart was like, you know, I told you this one where Ronald D. Moore shows up and he's like, so uh, you're our new writer. And he's like, yes, well, there's two things you need to know if you're going to write for me. The captain doesn't do enough. And according to Stuart, it's shooting or screwing. But according to Moore, it's fighting or um, depending on which version of the story you hear. But that was apparently Stuart's one big note on Picard three seasons into Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, which maybe explains a lot about how the uh, Star Trek movies turned out, how the Next Generation movies turned out, where Stuart was like firing writers from the sets because they weren't giving him the material that he wanted to play. We um, need bones. <laughs> we need more bones. I need bones. <laughs> um, but okay, do we want to talk about... That's what we need now. Bones. <laughs> but like, do we want to talk a little bit about Kirk then? Because Kirk is interesting here because he's... There's the the shadow of an arc. <laughs> I'm just thinking like um, Aaliyah on the deck, on the deck. Um, sorry. Her oath of celibacy is on record, Andrew. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like Kirk, like Kirk has like the bones of an arc here. If you'll pardon the pun, he has the rough outline of a character arc here, where it's like, is Kirk past his prime? Is Kirk That's chasing kind of- some? Yeah, yeah, that 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 sort of this very often kind of like it's a very light um, sketch that they kind of go to over and over again with with yeah 
Well, I mean, it comes back in in The Wrath of Khan. I think The Wrath of Khan does it much better because it's like what that movie's about. Whereas here it just feels like Kirk's in the movie. We need something with Kirk. So I don't know. Mm. Maybe he's maybe he's worried he's over the hill. Um, And it doesn't really connect to anything because it doesn't really have a payoff. Like there's no moment where Kirk really proves that he still has it. Because it's Spock who makes contact with Viger, which makes sense because it's arguably Spock's story. But like, there's never a moment Ooh, where Spock Kirk was spoken to. Yeah, as well. It's Kirk. Kirk um, is only drawn to this because of his own kind of humor. Because it's a chance to get in command of the Enterprise again. Right. Yeah. It's like they... it might be the last chance. I think isn't that what it's described as? This might be your last chance. You're yeah, worried. and it, it's it's um, it's ill advised as well. Yeah. Like, would the mission have gone differently if Decker was in charge? I don't think it would have. I don't think the plot would have unfolded any differently no. if Kirk wasn't there. No, I don't think so. And and um, and I don't think Spock would have any interest in kind of um, throwing his weight around. Yeah. Or in commanding. Yeah, I think and I, I think as like Decker doesn't and, have any problem with like giving science over to Spock. Like no, Decker's he has so problem much is respect with for yeah. for 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 Spock because Spock hasn't tried to <laughs> yeah, tried um, try to like get him fired and get removed and demoted. Like if if Decker were captain, I think he'd be fine with Spock being science officer, particularly if he just lost his science officer anyway, because Decker's only filling in because the science officer like got like thinged on the transporter pad. Um which, again, is another one of those lovely world-building kind of uh, moments. And it's also weird that, like, McCoy is not like, you what know... came back didn't last long. <laughs> Fortunately. Um, which You feel like they could have got another take on that line reading, I feel. Like, um... So you, re- you seem very glib down there for somebody who just wants something horrifying materialise in front of you. Like, we got one read. We got to get this thing out in cinemas by December 1979. <laughs> um... We don't have time for alt takes, unfortunately. Um, uh, yeah, May, I wonder do do people do people feel less connection with like Vulcans? Um, <laughs> they're, they're only half a person, particularly after the transporter accident happened. Well, presumably the Vulcan was beaming up with um with somebody else who was presumably human. Um, again, there's like there are obviously other aliens here. There's like forehead guy, for example, and there's Elia is a Delton, but it's again a very human centric uh, version of. And again, understandably, but given how much the the movie spends and how good it looks, it's interesting that there aren't more exotic aliens at various points during it. Well, the the, the main exotic alien, I think, is Feature. Yeah, but there's a lot right. of kind of Hans Zimmer esque. Uh, sorry, not Hans Zimmer. Um, I did write down uh, um, Hans Zimmer, but I think I was talking. I wrote in my notes, um, organs <laughs> um, are great, likely inspired by Hans Zimmer. And I've confused organs, the musical instrument that would might have inspired Hans Zimmer's uh, Interstellar. Interstellar. Which again, another movie about looking for God in the cosmos, kind of metaphorically. Yeah. Or you're and I, I I confused like the 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 space beings uh, bodily organs, <laughs> um, which likely inspired H.R. Giger. 
<laughs> Alien was released the same year. Like, again, I kind of find it interesting that Alien and Star Trek The Motion Picture are released, like, you know, within a year of each other. And they're both very sexual science fiction movies. But Alien yeah. is very much like a, a kind of a, like a rape nightmare sexual assault monstrosity. And on the other hand, Motion Picture is like, free love's pretty great, isn't it? We should have more of that free love, right? Free love's, what's really great about free love is that it's free, baby. Um, but it's but kind the, of interesting the, that you have the two the, in conversation. Both aliens, like like um, in the alien movie, the 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 uh, xenomorphs um, make um, their make ships kind of like their bodies. Yeah, you know where they they. they yeah, it's they, an expression of the like the the alien blends in perfectly on the Nostromo because yeah. it looks like it's a product of that. It's like they, a, yeah, the the bulkhead starts to become like somatic. Yeah, where it has like kind of like uh, ridges and almost like yeah. delineation, like it's the head of the thing, that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, and then again, it kind of it mirrors. Oh, sorry, it mirrors kind of quite nicely. I like again, it feels very much like two movies again in conversation. Where this, as you said, feels like a product of the late sixties. It feels like a product of a very different time in terms of movie making and in terms of what Star Trek was. What is any of that stuff, though? Any of what stuff? All those apertures and things. <laughs> like you know why are all these chambers yeah where there's like planets and like model 3d models of solar systems why does it just have all these kind of um like gulfs (laughs) within that thing chambers like lots of space for a like a spaceship to move in true and just kind of like maneuver slightly and kind of turn around like just go back and forward and get your thrust going there um, I mean, like, what's all that? What's all that doing? What's a f- <laughs> what do you think? Like the I mean, machine—it's all very spacious and everything. Yeah, like the, the like what? Ha- I because if like- if if it had just happened immediately, yeah, you know, if, like if it just kind of like came up uh, upon it and 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 there was like a giant's causeway, like immediately. Yeah, kind of and as soon the, as you at the bottom it. of yeah. At- at the bottom of that was the probe. Like, again, that's one of those, like, the movie is indulgent or as indulgent as it's allowed to be. Like, one of my favourite things is... Spock doesn't need to, um, like, um, you know, propel himself into... Versus a combatant, yeah. In order to come back and tell us things about the alien. Yeah. Because Spock has already been spoken to. Yeah. By the... Called out to by... Yeah, by, across the cosmos. Yeah, um, yeah. So it has some under, it, 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 Spock has some understanding that it doesn't need to go like that uh, deep in order to, to to get it and bring it back. But um, I think I think again, largely. not not to level, not to bring us back to the horniness because it all comes back to the horniness. But it's the idea that it like is the horniness. it is very horny. But the idea, the very Roddenberry esque idea that like sure, spiritual intertangling and uh, you know intellectual understanding are great. But if you really want to know somebody, you really have to properly like penetrate and be physically inside of them in order to become one man <laughs> man yeah like like it really does feel again that's that legacy of like the 1960s revolution where a lot of it was middle-aged men being like i can get laid right that's what this means that just means i get laid more often that's what we're getting at right cia have given me lsd to um, <laughs> uh, in order to seduce people but, but like 
I like that's that's something I do wonder. Like again, you you mentioned the idea of like the aperture and the orifice and like how much space there is inside V'ger. And I kind of like I want to know like the machine planet. Like cuz obviously there's all the fan stuff about was it the Borg. But like how do you think they greenlit that? Like at what point were they like, look, are we are we devoting a bit too much to this little strange space probe? You know, maybe it only needs one chamber. Does it need like seven of them sequentially? And it's like shut up, Bob. <laughs> The, 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 it 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 reduces carbon units to data patterns um which is a misunderstanding of carbon units <laughs> you know i mean look look you know i mean vger has plenty of it's maybe it's just doing that thing where it's like greenwashing it's just storing up carbon units so it can you know then kind of get to earth and then collect a massive tax rebate off it because it's stored up all these carbon units that it's converted into data Uh, (laughs) it's trying to understand things kind of on this um kind of physical um level of kind of or this kind of logical level i guess where it's like semantically, you reduce everything down to ones and zeros. Yeah. But it doesn't... Um, but there's no emotional understanding to it, which is no. which is the thing that I think the, 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 the movie's kind of getting Which is at. what Spock's trying to do as well, is to... Yeah. To, um, to purge himself of emotion and to reduce his understanding of the universe to that rational one and zero stuff. Like I, I think that stuff is quite clever, and I think it works in terms of mirroring, but I do also... He he describes it as infinite knowledge, infinite yeah. logic, but that is cold and that it has no beauty. Yeah. Um, I think he's 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 appreciating the kind of all that he would miss. Yes, were he um, to undergo Kulinhar and kind of like purge himself of his human side. Like again, it's notable that like that becomes Spock's. And again, so much of the motion picture becomes like later Star Trek stuff, where like Spock's arc after he's resurrected, like the entire arc of Star Trek Four hinges on a Spock making a guess and b Spock finally answering the question, "How do you feel?" And like it feels like all of that comes back to here, where where it's like no, there is an emotional component to living. That is important yeah. and can't be rationalized, or as you said, reduced down to computational data or ones and zeros. It's, yeah, it's um, it's what you don't learn in culinary school. Um, all right. Uh, in just in terms of kind of other stuff about the movie as well, like again, how how long and how indulgent those passages are. Like you joke about there being seven chambers. That's because like Spock's space journey needs to last like 15 minutes over the course of the film where there's always more for him to see, even though theoretically it's fine just to have one chamber where the V'ger can visualize whatever it is it's studying. But it's like, no, there's got to be another one past this and another one past that and a giant sexy model. And finally we're there. Um, but like things like the the arrival at the Enterprise, the moment where oh, Kirk just goes already. Yeah, that was the moment where you rolled your eyes because that scene just kept continuing. And like what I love about that sequence they is going like the longest way around. Yeah, no, like what's great is that it teases you, right? Because like you see the little ship, and obviously you know at the back there's a port. And there's a moment where they're circling around the like saucer section of the Enterprise. And you can see there's a dock at the edge of the saucer section, which is just round and perfectly shaped to sort the shuttle pod. And it looks like it's about to dock, but no, no, it doesn't. It then continues down. It's like, 
oh, okay, they're heading towards the shuttle bay. And it's like, oh, you see the shuttle bay. The shuttle bay's at the back. The door's open. Exactly. Are we going to go in the shuttle? Are we going to go in the shuttle bay? And it like, no, it moves very slowly past the shuttle bay. Uh, and then it kind of circles around and eventually lands where it's meant to be. But that was the moment where you sighed. That was the moment where you audibly like, were just like, I have had enough of this movie. And I know, I know you're not a big fan of like modern day Star Trek and I have my ups and downs with it. I'm not a huge fan of it either. But um, one of the shows, Lower Decks, which is the animated uh, Star Trek kind of comedy show, the mm. showrunner Mike Mahan did an episode uh, called Crisis Point, which is like spoofing the Star Trek movies. I think it's probably the best Lower Decks episode that they produced. But in it, um, he wanted to do, uh, well, he did an homage to that sequence, but apparently it was the one note he got from Paramount where he was like, I want the sequence to last seven minutes like it does in the feature film. I just want seven <laughs> minutes of this cartoon studying of the ship, doing the same angles over and over again in slow motion, cutting to the reaction of the characters' faces as they smile, and then cutting back to the same angle of the ship. And Paramount were like, no, you get one minute. You can do one minute of that. And he's like, no, seven. It's like one minute, one minute. That's all we're going to give you. Um, but yeah, it is, it is absurd. Like, again, that's one of those, like... It's showing you that the Star Trek universe is real in the sense of like giving you a sense of what every angle of the Enterprise looks like, not just the three recycled shots that they would use on the original Star Trek, but it's also something that kills the momentum of this movie dead. Like it's again that motionless picture, the kind of dinging that it we got have no it time to lose. <laughs> We need to leave immediately. This thing is heading right towards Earth. But can we do another pass the below the, the saucer section bit, please? I love, by the way, one of the things I noticed this time watching the director's edition is how many people are just falling in space. Like just people wearing spacesuits that like drop from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame, um, which just seems like they're just lost, like they've become unmoored and they don't have any thrust and nobody's helping them. They just seem to like, it's just... Oh, they're technicians, Darren. They're okay. Yeah. Fine, they know what they're doing. They're all right. I, I, your concern is touching. I like the, I like the idea that they get out of Vijar and find that everything's being destroyed while they're inside, <laughs> having the conversation. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's like, like I have absorbed Earth. <laughs> it's like, oh, we have okay. learned nothing. Maybe, maybe I should have just done a five-minute pass of the ship in hindsight, Kirk <laughs> says to himself after. Uh, but like, and, and again, much of this kind of pointing towards the future of Star Trek. So things like, say, the, the presentation of San Francisco, which is very much like the next generation like Deep Space Nine would do. Uh, things like the uniforms here arguably look more like the next generation uniforms than anything on like Star Trek. Anything That's on, like, definitely the Star Trek. pointing as well to uh, a socialist utopia. Mm. Or like San Francisco, oh yeah, oh the, yes, is the capital of the of the universe. Well, that's like very sixties. That's the legacy of the sixties. And again, it's it's notable that it's confirmed here. It wasn't in the original Star Trek. It's in the motion picture that it's like home of the hippies and the Manson family. Yes, Andrew. Yeah. Um, is the is the root of, culture? Yeah. Yeah. Is like where the future is lies. And again it does feel very much like a manifesto. Like, it feels very much like a mission statement for Roddenberry. I think, like, if you want to understand Star Trek, the motion picture is kind of like the Ur text, where it's, like, arguably more of a mission statement about what Star Trek is than it is an actual story, which is a problem. 
And the story itself is is very famously, like, obviously it's 2001 Space Odyssey, but it's also like a ripoff of two episodes from the original Star Trek. It's a ripoff of the Doomsday Machine, which is the, there's a giant space monster heading towards Earth and the ship is going to go into it. Uh, and also the, the Changeling, which is another story in which, and again, the details of this are almost like, Robert Wise didn't know this because he hadn't watched the episode until after the film came out. And apparently he was very ticked off at Roddenberry that this happened. But it's like the episode, The Changeling, is about a space probe that is launched by NASA. It's sent out into space. A bunch of aliens find it. They upgrade it. It completes its mission and it journeys back towards Earth, having the sum of all knowledge in it and plans to destroy Earth until the Enterprise talks it into ascending to a higher plane of existence. Wow. Uh, Does that sound at all familiar to the plot of something that we are like the movie that we have just watched? Exactly it. Apparently Robert Wise was really ticked off at Roddenberry that he was like, you couldn't even give me like a fresh original story idea. You just gave me a reheated, mediocre episode of the original (laughs) show to work with. All right, then. Um, Is there anything else we're talking about with the motion picture? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at, at, well, you and I, I guess. I'm so used to saying people because I'm so used to there being more than the two of us on here. But anything else you want to talk about with regards to the film that we haven't talked about already? Um feel like when they were drifting kind of towards the um ship maybe maybe Chekhov no sorry maybe Scotty could have talked more about his character <laughs> <laughs> you know and about it like his motivations and hopes and dreams yeah, no, no, yeah, very few of the supporting cast get any real development here. They're just kind of there. Um, by the way, I do want to single out, actually, one thing while you're talking about the characters, like, physically being present, which I guess is the most that they do. I love the use of, like, split diopter. Like, it, a lot of really good shots where, like, there's a character in the foreground and a character in the background, and they're both in focus. And it's very common on the bridge where you'll have, like, Kirk foregrounded and somebody over his shoulder who's also in focus. A really really like that directorial choice it's very old-fashioned again it feels like something from an older kind of movie than it is uh, but i really 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 like that um and also the sets were built for television as well um which is why they are so small like you'll you'll notice like when they're walking through the corridors the corridors they have to walk almost single file through them as compared to say the next generation because the next generation is the repurposed sets from the later movies because those movies were those sets were built for a 1970, like, 7, 78 TV show. And they didn't have time to fully rebuild them all from scratch. Um, and the Warp Core. The Warp Core, again, is very Next Generation-y as well, actually. Um, it's something I noticed. The infinite recursion as it goes down as well is quite nice. Um, all right, then, anything else from you? Anything else in your notes you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already and jumping out at you? Um, nothing is coming to mind. Um, let me just check. Lots of apertures. Um, <laughs> the creator must join with Vijay. Yeah, that's kind of like the the, the wanting to um, commune with God. Um, yeah. yeah. 
pushed and the idea that god is out there in space or whatever again like the idea that many of these science fiction movies are about space and about looking for god i mean again we mentioned interstellar like interstellar is another parent child movie where it's like we're looking for something out there and the something turns out to be our future selves like movies like contact for example where like jodie foster's character is like looking to commune with her dead mother and then her dead father like and she's looking out into space the way in which like again human beings have always looked to the sky and that connection has always been like spiritual as much as rational i guess uh which i think is kind of like a nice thing for a star trek feature film to be dealing with because it's like and again you know obviously star trek is an atheist universe and again that's a that's a whole other kettle of fish where for example like in the original star trek they're very clearly christian at least probably protestant where it's like um, one of the episodes hinges on, no, they're not talking about the sun god. They're talking about the son of God. And everybody goes, ah, they got the right religion. Or the moment where Kirk confronts like the Greek gods and he's like, uh, we have no use for gods on earth. We find one of them is sufficient enough. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> very 60s television kind of values. But as you get into the next generation, as you get into Deep Space Nine, you get the idea that the Star Trek universe is atheistic and almost like militantly atheistic. Like again, Roddenberry, like the Devil's Due script that he recycles for uh, the next generation from phase two is again about the idea that God is, sorry, the devil is just a sufficiently advanced alien. But I like that, the motion picture is, again, a, a movie that is spiritual. It's a movie about, like, no, we go into space not to look for, like, aliens specifically, but to look for meaning or purpose. Or we want to position ourselves in the cosmos in a way that makes sense, which I, I find kind of, like, moving and sweet and sincere, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And then finally, I guess the one thing to discuss then is the one thing worth mentioning is that this is the rare movie that was both usually financially successful. It was the fourth highest grossing movie at both the American and the worldwide box office in 1979. It earned more than Alien. It earned more than Apocalypse Now. It earned more than Moonraker. Oh, wow. It earned more than the Muppet movie. The only three movies that earned more than it were, and these are these are these are exciting movies: Rocky II, The Amityville Horror, and Kramer vs. Kramer, which was the 70s version of Batman vs. Superman, I guess. Streep Hoffman going toe to toe in a divorce movie. But yeah, the fourth highest grossing movie of the year, but one of the rare movies that was hugely financially successful, but earned so many and so negative reviews that the studio was like, okay, we will try it again, but we will try it again with a completely new director, a completely new vision, and Roddenberry is not going to be allowed anywhere near the set to make this movie. It basically got suicide squatted. Which is like, we got so lucky that this movie made as much money as it did before anybody realized it was a stinker. So we're going to fix it on the next go round. So I guess, yeah, that that's probably it. That's the only other thing worth noting, that the motion picture is a movie, the rare movie that got suicide squatted. Uh, which is probably the only time those two movies have been mentioned in the same sentence ever. All right, then. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. But since we don't have any guests this week. I'm going to ask, Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? What are you enjoying at the moment, related or unrelated to the movie that we've just discussed? Um, this is a 1979 film. In 1979, uh, President Carter was in charge of the United States. I'm following him was was Ronald Reagan. I I, I recently um, read 
or finished, I should say, the the um, Ronald Reagan biography. Um, and I'm going to tell you the author of that biography in one second. I, for, I keep forgetting it. I do beg your This pardon. is the one you mentioned on the network one, which kind of like was about, like you mentioned kind of discussing how he was heavily influenced by it's, the last person who talked to him. Like that yeah. That was the Reagan style of politics. It's interesting the kind of, some of the parallels between kind of him and uh, Trump. Right down to the whole being a celebrity candidate. Yeah, although I wouldn't draw too many um, equivalences in the sense that um, there's a kind of a Midwestern kind of uh, folksy sort of... I'm even careful to say decency, but... um, there was something kind of, I, I, I guess, kind of like a boomer version of decency, maybe you could say, or is it like the, the, the um, but he, he was a kind of the, the friendly face, of evil, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> As opposed to the evil face of evil. Yeah, yes. the, um, and and he, like, he never threatened to shoot anybody on Fifth Avenue, for example. No, no, he 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 was um, essentially kind of he uh, <laughs> like it, it's it's it it's not it, the the biography is not um, a, a partisan uh, biography. It's the kind of biography that could probably quite easily be read by somebody who's um, uh, sympathetic as it could by um, somebody somebody who's who's critical yeah it was it's uh, Bob Spitz um, was the author of 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 it but no I I enjoyed it quite a lot for kind of giving a lot of the context it's crazy going through Iran Contra yeah. When they start to have the hearings and they're brief, they, they want to kind of, you know, um, prepare him for us. So they'll, they'll ask him questions that they might ask in the hearing and find yeah. out that he, he doesn't really remember anything. <laughs> and they're like, this is alarming, but also maybe this is good for us. Very useful. This <laughs> you know? useful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Advantageous. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's. It it's it's interesting because of the the effect that a personality can have on history, as yeah. well. But the, yeah, the, in that Reagan Reagan sold himself as himself kind of thing. It was like it was very much the cowboy in the White House kind of thing. Yeah, but like there that there that there's a potential for, say in 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 the Reykjavik um, uh, peace conference, that the the idea of getting rid of all nuclear weapons by 1996 is kind of on the table. But um, one kind of catch of that deal is that you can't deploy the uh, SDI or the kind of Star Wars um, missile defense, which 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 didn't exist anyway <laughs> and, and well, wasn't just a catchy idea or name yeah yeah well it wasn't something that anybody thought was was scientifically feasible yeah. but it's like no the american people care about this 
and they didn't <laughs> like they'd be pulled and they they didn't really care whether there was like lasers in space um <laughs> gorbachev would prefer if there weren't lasers in space and was just saying you can keep on researching it just don't deploy it because we feel like that's a way that you can hit us with nuclear weapons uh, and after we, we've decommissioned ours, yes, yeah, that that gives gives you a kind of a first strike capability, yeah. where where we can't get back at you, <laughs> um, and it did like uh, that's it, it it kind of defeats the whole purpose of nuclear weapons, where it's mutually assured destruction. But they that that it was on the table to get rid of um, yeah, all nuclear weapons by ninety six. Yeah, and that and that this, this, <laughs> because Star this Wars and that this man who was kind of losing his marbles by the time we were born um, was 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 still in charge and still kind of making decisions that weren't uh, um, popular or kind of agreed upon, but that he was the guy, you know, he's the decider. Um, I like it. So it was it was it's a very interesting story, and the whole the the his is. His entire life story. So that's Ron Spitz, is it? Uh, Bob Spitz. Bob Spitz, apologies, sorry. It's Ron Reagan. It's, it's Ra- Ra- Reagan, an American journey. It's Ron Spitz biography of Bob Reagan. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, 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 there's a whole lot of like, like interesting things. That are, like the idea that you used to be, like everywhere used to have a newspaper. So there would be like a newspaper story about... Somebody being uh, blind drunk and spending the whole week in his um, apartment, like that would be in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, 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 there is. Oh, no... in a local. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah, every yeah. Local town had its own small press and stuff. Or that, like, yeah, yeah, and that they'd have a story about like how there's a new kind of a, a shoe salesman is is is, <laughs> is moving, and the shoe salesman's coming from again. Yeah. Like, there, there's an argument about the loss of that, like local media and that small town media, as, as these things have kind of like become conglomerates, and then they've been eaten by the internet and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. Like that you do miss that kind of like local journalism, that hard hitting local journalism about that guy who got blind drunk and stayed in his room all week. <laughs> I mean, future historians will miss those stories at the very least. And in terms of a Star Trek thing, um, I think we've mentioned it before, but that the um, Nicholas Meyer wrote uh, The Wrath of Khan and Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country. Um, and also wrote The 7% Solution, which is difficult yes. to come by. <laughs> but um, it's it's when um, it's when Sigmund Freud um, meets, teams up uh, with Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, exactly. And together they fight crime. And Laurence Olivier plays uh, Moriarty, and Robert Duvall is Watson. <laughs> Which is what more do you want from a movie? Um, what more do you say? Alan Arkin is Sigmund Freud. We've we've had like I, we watched that together. It was I a really 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 good time with that actually? Um, in terms of of recommendations uh, for myself, again just just a couple very briefly. First of all, nineteen seventy nine. What a year in movies! Uh, I would wholeheartedly recommend um, all sorts of movies from nineteen seventy nine. So for example, like Apocalypse Now, um, the Muppet movie, um, <laughs> and one that I'll recommend when we talk about uh, when we talk about like we'll be revisiting Rob Wise in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I'll recommend it now anyway. All that jazz uh, is also from nineteen seventy nine. Is a fantastic movie. Alien as well. Uh, the Jerk. 
it's a fantastic year for movies even outside of like star trek as well uh in terms of other random recommendations related to this the jerk steve martin that is indeed like one of his his big roles his first kind of like one of the roles that kind of established him really um and then obviously like we talked about like so science fiction and heady science fiction and how hard it is to imagine this getting made today i mean even on television i don't know that star trek is as heady or intellectual as the motion picture is i think like the next generation was i think maybe deep space nine was a times but i think that like as you reach the end of the 90s television even becomes a bit more blockbusterized where you have like on voyager you've got Branham braga pushing star trek to start producing or pushing voyager to start producing television movies like say the killing game or like um dark frontier or whatever where it's more bombast louder quicker faster and then you get enterprise and and whatever but i do think that if you're looking for heady intellectual science fiction I rewatched Contact recently, which is the Robert Zemeckis movie. It's 25 years old, starring Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. Reminded me a lot of the motion picture because it's a movie about sending signals out into space and kind of hearing back and trying to make, as the title implies, contact and communicate with an alien intelligence that is fundamentally alien and unknowable to us. Uh, it's I found it really sweet, really profound, really moving, very thoughtful very deliberate in its pacing, has a fantastic cast, would wholeheartedly recommend it. And in terms of Star Trek stuff I'd recommend, uh, myself and Andrew, before we watched the motion picture, I came downstairs to find Andrew on Netflix watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, in particular watching The Way of the Warrior. The Way of the Warrior is arguably the antithesis of the motion picture in that it's a movie that goes very, very fast and is still an episode of television and is propulsive and dynamic and has lots of space battles. But it is a remarkably well put together piece of television. As far as a 90 minute television movie goes... I can't believe how much stuff happened. (laughs) I was watching it thinking like, you know, this can't be the... Because, of course, descriptions of television shows don't tell you all the stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. They want you to be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, like, again, I would argue, like, The Way of the Warrior is basically a second pilot for Deep Space Nine. And if you want to start watching Deep Space Nine there, you can. I mean, I'd probably watch all of Deep Space Nine, but it is. I was just stunned going back to it. And again, I've been covering Star Trek for The Escapist, which is the website where I write. And I've maybe been wrestling a bit. I with... was telling you your video was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. On, um, um, on, on, on Star Trek and how Star Trek kind of gave up on the future. Yeah. Which is, again, and again, I worry, like we talked about this on the, the Undiscovered Country. I don't want to be the mopey guy who shakes his fist at the sky and is like, it was better in my day, damn it. Uh, kids these days with their rock and roll and stuff. But it is something I do. It was better in my day when people were looking forward to your day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rather than. Why? Are, why? These days, when everybody's looking back to mine. Your day looking back at mine. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, like, it's weird. I am a 32-year-old white guy. All of this nostalgia is aimed at me. Theoretically, I should be delighted, but I find myself just really uncomfortable with it, which is kind of... I feel like being at a party where everybody's pointing at me and they're like, say the line, Darren. And I'm like, I don't want to say the line. I just want to be at a party. Thank you very much. But I never want to be at a party. I feel like it's, it's like you... You do this thing where you um, you have a movie and you have like um, Jean-Paul Sartre and like Simone de Beauvoir. And it's like, you know, those names. Well, they're in this, but they're, <laughs> but they're not like, you know, putting forth any ideas <laughs> or, or doing kind of like anything that they did when but they you were would alive. Associate with them, yeah. But you know who they are. You've heard <laughs> and the that's names. enough. Yeah. Um, uh- 
But yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, I think like a lot of my stuff is like, so I have been having some difficulty with Strange New Worlds where they are recycling like the pattern of Star Trek, the iconography of Star Trek, the imagery of Star Trek. But I'm I'm having difficulty myself personally just connecting to anything happening underneath them where it, it feels like it's just somebody doing a, a remix of like 30 year old reheats and leftovers stuff that like was old when voyager was doing it so i've been going back and i've been re-watching deep space nine and it is stunning it is remarkable and that was partly prompted by yourself so thank you for that andrew so that would be uh my my recommendation so i do i like deep space nine we were um i like contact and uh 1979 was a good year for movies Sorry. i think <laughs> you're gonna saying how um like deep space nine they kind of uh, pussyfoot around the whole kind of like war with the Dominion rather than just kind of go on a peace mission <laughs> and bring bring Garrick. That that seems <laughs> like, started. yeah. That that happens in the fourth season finale. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, all right. But, uh, all right. <laughs> it didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> I thought that was um, very specific. I thought it was a very <laughs> randomly specific thing for you to say. <laughs> But then, they should that, like send Garrick on a peace mission. Like, well, that sounds like a, an episode premise, Andrew. <laughs> well, like I, like stopping him, Cisco should really be like, hold on, let's see where he's going yeah. with this. Yeah. I mean, plausible <laughs> no. deniability, right? Yeah. It's like it's a. I mean, I think like okay, this is we don't have time to talk about Deep Space Nine in full. But one of the things I really like about Deep Space Nine is the sense in which it's like implicitly a criticism in some ways of like the Federation's worldview where like the Dominion, the Dominion are obviously space Nazis and they're terrible and they're evil. Like they literally have like drug addicted crocodile henchmen. That's how evil the Dominion is. They aren't just crocodile henchmen. They're drug addicted crocodile henchmen. Um, well, but I like, never really got what the Dominions, I'm sure this was explained, but what their whole kind of purpose worldview. was. Like what, why, why do the founders want to, um, expand because they were basically because they were persecuted and feared and hatred and they decided after being like chased and hounded that the way in which okay. they would prevent that from happening was they would impose order on the universe and to do that they genetically engineered the Vorta and they genetically engineered the Jem'Hadar and they basically created a very evil version of the Federation where you have members like the Karama for example and all these unaffiliated worlds that are kind of swallowed by them they're this kind of like dark depressing version of the federation where and again you can point the parallels where like the shape changers are it's like a a, a bullied person who's, who's yes. now kind of like standing up for themselves kind, kind of except when they stand up it's like genocide um but like yeah like and again you you can point to things like say that the changelings are obviously humans because they're the rare star trek aliens that don't have anything on their forehead they just have very smooth faces the vorta are very clearly like the vulcans because they're kind of psychic and have pointy ears uh, and the Jem'Hadar are like the Klingons, I guess, because they've got like weird scaly stuff going on. But the thing that's interesting rewatching it is you like, obviously, Dominion, evil, fascist, Nazis, terrible people do terrible things, not very nice people on either side. But if you watch Deep Space Nine, you get the real sense of like why the Dominion is acting the way that it is. Because what happens is like early on, they tell the Federation to stay out of their backyard. 
And the Federation's response to this is just start sending more probes and to start like looking for stuff to mine in Dominion space. They start mapping Dominion space. They start talking to other aliens within Dominion borders. They start building like communications relays and infrastructure on the other side. They start colonizing planets. And like there's a point where you're like, okay, I understand maybe why the Dominion. They start building a Federation kind of within the Dominion. Yeah. yeah. And so you kind of like, without justifying what the Dominion do, which is terrible, you start to understand why maybe they begin to feel that they need to deal with this problem proactively. Like, it's it's insane. Like, literally within episodes of the Dominion saying, look, just stay on your side of the wormhole and everything will be fine. You just cut to like Dax and Cisco cruising through the Gamma Quadrant going, what strange stuff are we going to find over this neck of the woods today? And it's like, okay, just take a deep breath. Maybe listen to the guys who, like, are controlling an evil fascist empire on that side of the world and ask you to stick your nose not in their business. Um, But yeah, okay, sorry, that's been a weird tangent on Deep Space Nine, apologizing for the Dominion. But that's something I do find interesting when you rewatch it, is the sense in which, like, you get why the Federation, as much as they spread democratic values and as much as they represent a utopian idealism, kind of threaten other galactic powers. And, like, I like that in Deep Space Nine where you have the Klingons. Where, like, the thing with the Klingons is the idea that they've been peaceful with the Federation for too long and that their own culture is kind of, like, you know, atrophied over that time. That, like, by not being aggressive and imperialist and expansionist, by endorsing Federation values of, like, peaceful cooperation and mutual coexistence, that they become corrupt and decrepit and decaying. And so you inevitably end up with things like the Klingon War or things like Gowron taking control of the Council or things like the Alliance with the Rom, all this sort of stuff that's happening, which is, like, maybe the Federation isn't perfect and maybe its influence on the universe isn't always what you would expect it to be which is something that i really like about deep space nine sorry that has been my very long recommendation of deep space nine apologies for that it has literally gone dark in the room where andrew is speaking (laughs) in the time that i've been talking about how much i love deep space nine um all right so uh we will be back next week where myself and andrew will be back we talk about j bim which is an indian movie that's been on the 250 for about two years i've been putting off covering until we got an occasion to do it. So we'll be talking about that. It's available to watch on Amazon Prime, so you can watch it whenever you want, as long as you have a subscription. Then, the week after that, we are doing Shark Week, baby. We are covering all four Jaws movies in the middle of the week. That was Andrew's idea. I'm not sure it was a good one, but we'll see how it pans out. And, because I kind of teased it earlier, in a couple of weeks, we'll be discussing another Robert Wise movie. We'll be talking about The Sound of Music. If you have a problem... Call a plumber. The fantastic Shiva McQueen will be joining us for that conversation. All right, take care, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. All right, cheers. All right, I'll leave you to that. Thanks. Take care.